Be yourself, be honest, but be out there and be prepared to be criticised. If people tell you in public what sucks about your business in that environment, the, the big learning for me was they weren't trying to bring me down. They wanted me to fix it. And if you respond to that by fixing it, credibility goes through the roof. When people talk about the notion of work-life balance, what they should be doing is talking about work-life separation. Because in fact, the work, the work actively damages the life, the rest of you. And it's got worse, not better in the last decade. You know, now we're expected to have the gadgets all the time. You know, we're expected to be interrupted. That expectation is extremely toxic and I think should be banned. Again, if you delegate, come back, just let me come back to this, that idea of hiring a CEO. I'm very strong on the notion of delegating everything that you're not passionate about to someone else. If you do that, and if you build enough culture around what you're doing, you can be absent from that for a while without damaging the business. That's the key. Hey there, my name is Daniel Franco, and this is the Creating Synergy podcast, your business and leadership podcast where we speak to high-profile leaders and thinkers about their careers and dig deep by asking the questions we all want the answers to, uncovering their stories, strategies, leadership lessons, and their secrets to success. Today on the show, I had the privilege to sit down with a great man, Simon Hackett, an Australian technology entrepreneur who co-founded Internode in 1991. And after growing it to 450 staff with 190,000 customers and an annual turnover of 180 million, he sold it to IINet for $105 million in December 2011. Simon has also done some amazing things in his life, which we touched on in this podcast. So he was part of the conglomerate of universities that actually bought the internet into Australia. He bought the internet into Australia. Side note, for those who remember it, Simon actually explains the noise that those modems used to make every time we logged into the internet. And he informed us that it actually wasn't even required. We've been sold a lie our whole lives. In 1990, he co-created the world's first internet toaster. Yeah, you heard that correctly. The world's first internet toaster. They cooked a piece of toast from the other side of the world. That's unbelievable. This has been touted as arguably the world's first IoT gadget. He's also a huge advocate for electric vehicles. And as such, he imported the first Tesla Roadster into Australia. And he documented the process of driving at 501 kilometers on a single charge during the Global Green Challenge in Australia. This was reported to be a new world range record for a production electric car at the time. He went on to spend some time with the great man himself, Elon Musk, and then subsequently appeared in a testimonial for Tesla. How many of us can say that? We've done a testimonial for Tesla. Simon has also started the Hackett Foundation, which undertakes target philanthropy in the world in support of community endeavors, and most notably is the main sponsor of the world-famous festival, Warm Adelaide. He's also invested in multiple companies and is a significant investor in Redflow Limited, an ASX-listed company that is doing amazing things in the battery manufacturing, renewables, and environmental industries. This episode is epic. Not only did we hear about his amazing journey, his career, and his innovative marketing techniques that he used to scale into Node, but Simon and I also deep-dived into his thoughts on the skills required to be successful in business, the difficulties of leadership, the art of delegation, the role that a CEO plays, and why he chose not to be the CEO of Internode, managing your mental health, and much, much more. So without further ado, here is my chat with Simon. 
welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have the great man Simon Haddock. Simon Hackett on the show. Welcome, Simon. <laughs> G'day, Daniel. Good to, to be here. Off to a good start. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Mumbling my way through it. Very well. Um, thank you again. It's been uh, – I'm really excited about this podcast. I have been for some time. You and I have had a couple of chats before. Yep. Um, and we've gone down so many different rabbit holes, so I'm assuming this is going to go down the same same path. Uh, you are um, you are in the midst of writing a little bit about your journey, so a lot of today's podcast will be tailored towards your journey and the creation of Internode and, and, and everything that you've done in that space yeah. um, all through to what we would like to look at from a new renewables point of view. I know you're very interested in that world yep. and everything you're doing post internode. Yep. Um, so we're going to follow that structure. But I really want to start off with a couple of fun facts before okay. we do. Um, th- there's nothing, None of this is like something that you haven't heard of. But fact number one, you bought and owned the first ever Tesla Roadster in Australia, is that correct? Absolutely, and Re- you, repeatedly. Repeatedly, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, you're a repeat customer. You drove it five, over 500 kilometres on a single charge, which uh, was the longest drive by any commercial electric vehicle. Yeah, at the is time that- it was the longest drive in a production electric vehicle. It was 300 and something kilometre theoretical range. Yeah. That That's amazing. And then this is the part that really sort of – you went on to do a testimonial for Tesla. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah that's amazing. And because you've met Elon, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Yeah, and have. you were instrumental in bringing Teslas over into Australia. Yeah, I, I kind of annoyed Elon into, into realising <laughs> the market was here and it worked. And there's a lot of us, a lot of happy Australian customers now, so that worked too. That's, that's brilliant. What I am, I'm, I, like it's in my bucket list to, uh, to order one. What, what sort of um, put that all together? Yeah, in the mid-90s. I had the opportunity um, out of a short part of a longer story. I was in, in California a fair bit through the 90s in my business career. Yep. And some friends there had an instance of the second coming of the EV, mm-hmm. the, what we're in now is the third coming. Yeah, right? we are. And the second coming of the EV was a thing called the GM EV1, mm-hmm. a device that GM were forced to build in California under sufferance. And they leased them and they took them back and they crushed them. There's a whole backstory there. Yeah, but wow. I got handed the, the keys, more accurately the pin actually, to, to one of these and spent the weekend driving it. And I was hooked, Daniel. Um, EVs actually are just a nicer way to drive a car. It was nothing to do with saving the planet at that point. It was all about they're just a better way to drive a car. And so I was committed to finding someone who would sell me an EV that didn't suck ever since that point. (laughs) And Elon was a part of Tesla, the the first people to to be able to sell me an EV that didn't suck. And my God, the Roadster didn't suck. Yeah, wow. What was the process like of trying to get one of those things everywhere? And then like, how did you charge it? Right, 110 <laughs> volt. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't actually sure if I could charge it when I got it here, so I, I bought a 110 volt like, adapter transformer yeah, just in really. case I had to use it. I yeah. didn't. The car actually drinks anything. Oh, really? Uh, so yeah, I met Elon at a conference in the in a year or two before the roasters yeah. came out, and at that point it was nothing but him on a stage and a, and a word document with a picture of how good it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I said to him after the talk he gave, "If I buy one of these things and take it to Australia myself, is that cool?" And he said. Uh, it's perfectly cool as long as you don't mind the servicing challenge right? <laughs> being an awful long way from the mothership. Yeah. So I, I ordered one um, and and shifted it out to Australia. Uh, left, left-hand drive, US registered car, couldn't drive it legally in Australia. Uh, one of the things I discovered to my enormous annoyance is that Australian road rules make it very hard 
to drive a, a, a left-hand drive car in Australia. Mm. You, you have to – you can drive old ones. You see the old cars. That's because they're grandfathered under the old Australian design rules. Yeah. But unless it's a very old car or a garbage truck, it's actually really hard to get, a, to get permission to register. Oh, really? So all the driving I did was in special events on special permits. I drove from Darwin to Adelaide along in a thing called the Global Green Challenge yeah. alongside the solar cars. It's yeah. what you were referring to earlier. Yeah. And I ran it on the racetrack as demo laps in the, the V8, sorry, the, in the Formula One yeah. track in Adelaide. Yeah. Uh, and then it wound up back in America. I bought the first right-hand drive one because by then Tesla had actually started making right-hand drive yeah. ones. So, I, so that's the one I drove around. And then you – amazing. So the yeah. first – so you've, you're two firsts in there. Is yeah, that what so, we're... so first, first Tesla ever to be brought into Australia, first road legal one, the right-hand drive one, yeah. and then I wound up – um, the, the roadster I own now, I still own one, is actually the last right-hand drive one Tesla ever delivered to a right-hand drive country. Oh, wow. So the last best roadster there'll ever be. There and it's an awesome little orange car and I love it. Yeah. I saw it in your car park yeah. the other day. That was brilliant. That's, a, that's an amazing story. And um, we could go on about um, that experience, but I want to go on to the second point, <laughs> which is going to be more of a segue into yeah. your career and um, – and where you uh, where you've come from, and and where you uh, are now heading well, heading in your life. So you were the first person to ever connect a commercially domestic appliance to the internet. <laughs> yeah, the, which, to, to the best of my knowledge, yeah, which, which was a toaster. A toaster was that, <laughs> like like why a toaster? Were you uh, just like you, I know you're a problem solver, but you didn't want to get up off your seat. Like what was the what was the reason for the toaster in the mid eighties? Toasters were a thing. There was there was um, there was an app. I can't remember the name of it now. Someone will remind me afterwards. Um, with flying toasters in it, and so toasters were kind of a geek thing in the mid eighties. And well, I co- yeah, I co-created this thing with some collaborators in in the states. Again, sort of you know, halfway down this story, the yeah. Inanode story, or the, yeah. actually the pre-Inanode story. And we it was the answer to almost a joke, which is what happens when you combine two aspects of my business um, knowledge, yep. which is computer networking and industrial machine tool control, Yeah, um, you get the opportunity to burn the bread from the other side of the world just because you can, just because in the mid-80s this whole IoT thing, Internet yeah. of Things thing, yeah. did not exist. You could argue this was the first IoT gadget ever built. Yeah, wow. And um, we had a ball building it just to prove the point and it was actually just to drag people into a booth in a technology show in California that the collaborators I was working with at the time said, if we made one of these things, and at the time I was working at Adelaide Uni and mm-hmm. they said, if you'd come over to the States and spend a few weeks with us and actually make that work, we'd fly, we'd pay you to come out and make it work and, and let you show this thing at the booth. And I'd never been to America. I was a young kid just starting yeah. a job at Adelaide Uni after graduating. From. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, why not? So we built this thing to burn the bread that on the other is, side of the world. Um, that is amazing. And I actually started Internode because of that toaster. Oh, wow. The word Internode. Is a, is a collapse of internet and node, right? Node yeah. is a device on a network. Yeah. The whole idea was to make IoT gadgets, only the term IoT didn't exist, there was no market, and that IoT gadget cost $1,500 to build. Yeah. So I was 30 years too early. Yeah, wow. Think about that as a business if you'd... Uh... Yeah. Because So going into the journey, you started off into Node. We'll talk about... That. Yeah, we'll, talk we'll a get li- to it. We'll talk a little bit about before how it all started, yeah. but... But I, there was a slogan that I think that you wrote somewhere or I read on one of your – or maybe you sent it to me – that you wrote – that you, you started out to build interesting black boxes. Yeah, interesting that black boxes. do bo- things on networks, right? Correct. And yeah. that, like the toaster, right? Yeah. So exactly. So it was an exercise in directly now what you call IoT, exactly that. Network-connected devices that could control something in the real world. That's a long-term passion of mine. 
the toaster wasn't the start of that. It was the middle of that. I, I, yeah, wow. When I was a university student, I, my, I had a part-time job writing software for industrial machine tools mm-hmm. well before I understood the term public liability. You know, I, I had <laughs> software running on things like Apple IIs, yeah. driving enormous amounts of hydraulic equipment all over factory floors. Yeah, uh, I had a ball doing it, and, and it, but it created that real passion in me for getting computers to do something useful, physical in the real world, mm. not just for making things race, race across a screen. Mm. What was it about computers at that time that just drew you in? Like, yeah, wh- Interesting question. Yeah. I, I realized through a nice combination of factors that I had a real aptitude for, for computers, by which I mean an aptitude for understanding and caring about how they work mm-hmm. and knowing at a visceral level right down to the, you know, right down to the wires how they work and why they work. Mm. It was a great era to do that. As a, as a school student, started out marking cards and sending them off to a thing called the Angle Park Computing Centre, yeah. something the state government had built and they didn't realise what a great thing they built. It, it started the computer-related careers of multiple people I know in my kind of cohort that yeah. had access to computers, big expensive mainframes. Yeah. And that place lent my school an Apple II back when that was an expensive and esoteric yeah. thing. And it, and it came with this little red book which was, had both the circuit diagram and the manual for how to program it in machine code, something yeah. that no one would care about except for some reason I did. Oh, wow. And I opened this up and for some reason, Daniel, it all made sense and I just started doing it and I realised I had this, this deep interest and understanding of how it worked and I liked being in there doing the thing. Yeah. That aptitude. So it just spoke that, to you. Yeah, it spoke to me. Absolutely yeah. did. So that opportunity was created by dropping this computer, which at the time was expensive, in the laps of me and a few other people at, the, at my school. A few other people only because there was this tiny cohort that actually found that interesting and the rest of the kids went outside and, you know, kicked balls and played football and, and we, were, we were the boring kids sitting inside playing around on this computer thing yeah. trying to avoid the sport. That's And we really loved it. And you loved it. It's a different type of sport, isn't it, really? Well, it I- is. It is, actually. Do you? It's a real sport and a real logic puzzle. It, yeah, yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Just a quick note: this episode is brought to you by Synergy IQ, leaders in enabling change. Synergy IQ are the ones you call when the change or challenge seems so complex and you don't know where to start. But more importantly, we're the ones you call when you want to make a change that will actually last. If you want to check them out, it's at synergyiq.com.au. Do you? Um, can you explain to us just how it all started then? Like, so, you, so you're this kid that's taken this interest in, in computers. Yep. Um, you, you, you're working your way up through the wanks, obviously working at Adelaide University or, or the above. What, what's the story? How did it come right. about to, to one day you saying, actually, you know what, I want to start my own business here. Right, right. Happy to tell you that story. I will start at the end and say for some reason I always felt like I wanted to start a company mm. at, at the earliest I can remember an answer to that question, what do you want to, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? Mm. For me, it had it had some aspect of actually having my own company. I don't know why. Mm. I think it's actually a form of mental foible that a small percentage of the population have that I can't necessarily explain. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing, right? Yeah. So school student got exposed to this Apple II, which yep. was really damn cool and interesting. Yep. Yep. Coerced my parents into buying me one. <laughs> um, made pocket money by making hardware to go into that Apple II and selling it to the local computer store, the joysticks, computer yeah, joysticks wow. to plug into the Apple II for games, sold that to the local computer store um, that sold apples at the time. That's amazing. Got my first education in globalisation because about a year after I was making these things in, in, in the shed out the back of my house, 
the guys had this joystick that they brought in from overseas that was cheaper for them to import than my parts cost. Uh, welcome to globalization, yeah. right? And I immediately gave up and found something else to yeah. do, and that wound up being writing software yeah. on these things. So, wound up at Adelaide Uni as a student. I did a, a degree you'd call a computer science degree, except they didn't exist in the mid '80s. So it's an <laughs> applied maths degree with computer science as a major. Yeah. Kept writing industrial machine tool software in my spare time. Graduated from Adelaide Uni. Um, had a job interview for my first and only job that I've ever had a job interview at, which is to go back and work at the uni yeah. as a thing called a, called a systems programmer. Because yeah, like you're doing this uni course, but potentially smarter than the lecturer that's uh, uh, in, in computing, maybe yeah. right? Yeah. At least, well, at least high aptitude. Let's mm. put it that way. So, got a job at Adelaide Uni, um, helping to run the big mainframes, things mm-hmm. called digital VAX VMS computers that mm-hmm. the university had. And while I was working at the uni, I was there at the right place at the right time. So I was one of these people that was that were maintaining and running, you know, being a sysadmin mm-hmm. in modern parlance for these computers that the students are on that I used to be one of. Yeah. So there I'm doing that. This is the point where the internet gets founded in Australia. It was a creation of the university sector. There's a thing called the Australian Academic and Research Network, ARNET, and it was the Australian universities building the first Australian internet knowing through collaboration with their colleagues in the US what they were missing out on. The US internet was already 10 plus years old. We had none. We had an email system only, um, and and a pretty and pretty interesting Australian mm. built one. So, what year was this around? Uh, this is this is mid eighties. So, I I, um, I got my job at the uni in nineteen eighty seven. Graduated in nineteen eighty six, and then I was working at the uni in nineteen eighty seven. I was born in eighty five. There you go. Right. <laughs> so so nineteen eighty eight ish was the point where the unis got together, and they they decided they were going to build the first Australian internet. Yeah. And that team it was about twenty people, and I was one of them. And we had meetings, had a meeting at Adelaide Uni the year before the thing was built. And by sheer coincidence, it was Adelaide Uni where I was based. And there was a company that these big computers the university used, digital VAX EMS computers, mm-hmm. the little things you would mentally associate in the modern world with people in white coats, yeah, like sort of yeah. mainframes, yeah. big, big yeah. things, yeah. like things that make a fridge look small. Yeah. With, with a CPU power probably less than this watch. Yeah, wow. And you would tune them up so you could have 70 or 80 people logged into them doing stuff. So those existed. That's those things needed specialised software added to them to connect to the internet because the internet was a new thing. It didn't mm-hmm. come with them. And there was a little company in California called TGV mm-hmm. and they made the software that you needed for that and they sent one of their guys out, their first employee after the two founders. TGV actually stands for two guys in a vax. <laughs> and that third guy, Stuart Vance, got sent out to Adelaide, got wind this was happening and successfully sold that software to all the universities because they had no choice, they needed it. But I got to be friends with the guy and I really got the hang of their software. He was the man that he and I were the ones that decided to do that toaster demo, right? He then called me back a few months later and he said, hey, you know that thing we were talking about over dinner, that that stupid idea of making a toaster connected Mm. to the internet? If you can do it, we'll take you out to our place in California and 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 let let you... Showed that to the world. And so I did that. Took three months leave of absence of the uni, went to, went to California, first time I'd been out of the country, had a ball working with these really smart guys in California. What an education for a little kid, right? Yeah. And I came back and not surprisingly in hindsight, the next thing they did was offer me a job mm. because they knew I was bloody smart at this stuff mm. and there weren't a whole lot of people that knew their software backwards yeah. like I did. And I turned them down. Oh, Wow. They were offering me three times my uni salary, another ten grand US as a you know to move, and this is the mid eighties. This is serious. Offer your job to go over to there. go to California yeah, and work yeah. for TGV in, in in Santa Cruz in California, a fabulous place with really smart people. And I said no. Lifetime 
opportunity. I said no because I wanted to start my own company, damn it. Yeah. That was this incredible fork in the road, right? Yeah. That version of Simon would still be there working for you know, Google on a, and, and would, have, would have made millions yeah. being a small part of a large machine, but I wanted to start a company, yeah. right? So I turned them down. They did something hugely generous. They said to me, yeah, fair enough, we get it because they, they, they were a startup, yeah. um, but we trust you. And so how about we hand you the distributorship for our expensive software that runs on these big expensive computers and you sell and support it in Australia because we trust you to do that. And so that happened. Yeah. They lent me 25 grand US, a lot of money at the time, yeah. you know, again, mid-80s, um, and to, to start up to start up doing that. So did they get a share in your business at all? No, no, no they just so lent me the money. And, and the, that software, wow. Daniel, was really expensive, but also because it's software, really high margin, I kept half of whatever I could, I could sell. Yeah. And I got 15% a year maintenance cost for upgrades and support, and I did the support. Yeah. So that so bootstrapped. they got their return straight Yeah, of course away, they did, yeah. yeah. But the point is that they bootstrapped Innanode. I was going to make little black boxes like yeah. the toaster, but in my spare time selling their software. The software sales worked really well. My accountant got really confused because <laughs> I'd come, you know, after two or three years, I'd, I'd hand in my books, which are really simple, which is that we'd, we'd, we'd made $500,000 in and we kept half of it. Mm. And, and it was, that was it, yeah. and apart from paying a few people. It was really simple. Yeah. But that software and those computers were heading towards the sunset. That was already obvious, right? They were not going to be there in 10 years' Technology time. was changing. Right. Microcomputers mm-hmm. taking over the world. Mm-hmm. So I knew the last I, – I knew I was going to have my best year selling that software before everything crashed in terms of selling it, and that happened. And that last year we made a quarter of a million dollars profit selling a license to Coles Meyer nationally, I think it was, for running that software on their VAX VMS computers around mm-hmm. the country. And I immediately spent 100% of it to turn us, turn us into an ISP. I bought all the hardware I needed to become an internet service provider in Adelaide. Because I knew how to do that. I was one of the people in Australia, one of the 20 people that knew how the internet worked by starting it here. So I took that knowledge and said, I can be an ISP. And I bought a whole lot of modems and routers and stuff and started doing the internet thing, hired a few more people. So So right place at the right time. But also bet all the money quite happily. Yeah. The upside is no debt, right? And so internet until much later never had any debt. That's amazing. And I was quite happy to bet the money so you're quite bucks. literally – so another first, so another fun fact that yeah. you're one of the people that brought the internet into Australia. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, so yeah. We're one of, I was one of the team at the university sector that figured out what that was and made it work. Uh, I, I got the university to buy a Cisco router when Cisco's didn't exist in Australia because I sent email to this company called Cisco that I found on yeah. the interwebs and their tech support was actually really good. So I said to the uni, these guys know what they're doing. Let's go buy one of those things. And, wow, and so I've been playing with Cisco routers for a long time. All what that a stuff. story. Do, does that, like the whole. But you're right place, right time, right? Yeah. Aptitude, aptitude lo, right place, right time. You need all three of those. It's one of the deep lessons for me, right? And, and you don't want to be too up yourself about the fact that if you're in the wrong time, the aptitude isn't good enough. So I'm going to ask you a question. I come from a construction background, right? Right. Um, I, have, uh, I, I have done a bit of property developing in my time and. And my dad's a builder and family full of builders, right? Yeah. And the typical thing, you would have heard this before. As you walk down the street uh, and my dad did this a thousand times and I've done it to my kids a couple of times as well, right? So you're driving down the street and you drive past the house. You go, see that house? I'll build that house. Like that's one, the house that I built. Right. Do you have that same 
thought process with just the the way we run business here in Australia now. Like I like this whole world. Like right now, there's internet everywhere in this yes. room, and it's come so far. It's come amazingly far. But there's this connection to that point, and you're part of it. Yeah, and, that, I, and I I like the sense of being part of it. I mean, none of none of that old in, that original infrastructure we built is still there. It's all been Obviously. superseded a hundred times. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, but yeah, I was there on the ground floor of it, and and my business career is, is is consequential to having been fortunate to be one of the little cohort of Australians that were the first people to figure out what the internet was in Australia and mess about and kind of make it work. Yeah. And the, the what became the commercial internet was a thing that just glommed on to the university network that the mm. universities had built. And and it's still around, but the university that that's now a separate network to the commercial sector of the of the internet. But but yeah, it's fun to have been part of the genesis of that. And really a lot of what I did in Internode was about um, – one of the ways I describe what I did at Internode is high-technology plumbing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. uh, you, you, you come from a building background. Yeah. Well, I do as well. well Mine's pipes. plumbing <laughs> yeah. and my pipes. Right? Yeah. They're electronic <laughs> pipes, but, but the concepts are annoyingly, annoyingly appropriate, right? Yeah. That you are building a tree structure distributing something through pipes. Yeah. You really are, that's right? Brilliant. And fundamentally you mm. do lots of stuff but that's that's what's at the bottom of that. And a lot of fun in Internode putting physical infrastructure out in the country along with other ISPs that were doing it to try to accelerate that process um, in the broadband era. I think called ADSL. Yeah. We had a lot to do with the ADSL era. So ran- random question that's just come into my mind as you're talking through this. Sure. Do you remember when we used to log on to the internet? Like you used to... Uh, with a modem. With a modem yes, and with a used modem. to make that. Yes, make, <laughs> make, make, the, make the strange mating calls. What was that? What was the point of that noise? What like? Right. Can, can you explain that noise to me? I've always yeah. wanted to know this answer. Yeah, I mean, the, the well, there's two things, right? The, what the point of the noise is and the fact that you could hear it. Yeah. Because you didn't have to hear it. It didn't, oh, you didn't have to, right? It just, it's just the, I'm logging on now. It, that was well, so, that was, I used to hate it because my parents could know what I was doing if I was yeah, <laughs> logging yeah, on well, to you, the... You, well, you, well, you could have actually you could have actually suppressed the noise, but the oh, reason the reason it's playing the noise is so you knew you'd actually dial the right number and you didn't have a human at the other end saying, hello, hello. Yeah, no, that, right? well, that happened. It was, that, right, that's the point. That, yeah. So the, the reason for, for making letting you hear the first part of that transaction is actually for you as a human to make sure that things working yeah right and you can so you could suppress that that noise yeah uh if you if it's if you want oh, to because that, that takes you back doesn't it? I remember yep. the amount of times that the fax machine would just keep on ringing because someone's trying to connect that, with right <laughs> and then those, those noises that that thing you're hearing is actually the two modems at each end characterizing the quality of the line actually working out what audio tones are working and what audio tones are not working in yeah. that particular phone call in that particular phone line and then they use the ones that are working to transmit information Ah. They were actually incredibly sophisticated devices. It's like a locksmith type thing with a little Yeah, well it's there. it's running different sounds yeah. through to actually so the so the two ends actually know the sequence is happening. Yeah. So they build an audio map in software of which audio frequencies are running properly right now and which ones aren't and, and then restrict the communication to the ones that are running. So is that why it used to take like 10 times to log on because it was just if, trying to find If it was a, if it was a rubbish line. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was an internet line. Yeah. That, that there you go, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's amazing. Sorry, I digressed. Yep. I just wanted to ask that question because it popped yeah, into dial, my mind. Dial-up internet, hey? Yeah. yeah, that is where it all started. Um, you gosh, it was slow. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I, and, and to give you a sense of scale, right, the the most advanced dial-up modems wound up being the 56K ones based actually, yep, 56 kilobit modems. The first link between Australia and the US, the first internet link was 64K. It was the equivalent of one dial-up connection that when we first built the internet in Australia. That was all there was. So, 
and it then takes a long time to get data across. Yeah, and then <laughs> then it went up about I think it was two fifty six k. So you know, like four of them. Yeah, and then imagine this: the year after we did the toaster demo, yeah. we did an audio demo. I was actually one of the people involved in some of the first experiments with with sending sound over the internet, mm-hmm. which is ironic given that what's underneath it was dial up modems, right? Yeah, wow. Well, which is sound, but yeah. the point is that that I did these demos where we put a CD player in Australia and a radio tuner in Australia and then played the sound in packets across the internet and played it on the same show floor that we demoed the toast. Mm-hmm. The next year we were demoing sound over the internet. When I was doing it, I was monopolising 95% of the entire Australian internet at the time oh, in wow. to the States because I was using it all to send sound. Actually, it was the cricket. Really? We actually, it was actually the cricket. We were listening to the cricket from Australia yeah, on, the, on the show floor of this trade show in California. You need to appreciate that for your listeners today, that is incredibly boring. What do you mean it's hard to have sound over the internet? You know, all my radio comes yeah. over the internet. There was none of that. This was the start of you that had to create it. Someone yeah. had to create it. I was oh. actually one of the people involved in designing the protocols for carrying sound in network packets in order to get that job done. Yeah. So oh, that. I know right. if there's anything I know about it's trying to download that sound on a one on a dial-up modem. I had <laughs> yeah, that. it was a bit crazy. Everyone had LimeWire, right? We were all downloading music and <laughs> whatever. Yeah, there's the whole piracy thing. <laughs> yeah, well, let's not anyway, go down that path. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yep. So, so Internode has taken off, right? It's it's in that point of now, like things are happening. You're right, in the so right Inter- place. Yeah, let, let's let's set the context. So Internode was I, I turned down their job offer and started Internode in 90, May 1991, mm-hmm. and turned us into an ISP, a dial-up ISP, in about 94, 95. That How hard the, was that as a decision to just pivot? Not, not hard at all. Because you the thing that was – so that the intervening three years were making us plenty of money selling that software, but I knew that would end and it did. It was yeah, obvious okay, it was so going to end. It so was a Kodak moment. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and unlike Kodak, I was I was not prepared to Correct. die, right? Yeah. So immediately reinvested in becoming an ISP. I knew how to do it because I'd helped build the internet in Australia, so of course I knew how to do it. So did that. Mm-hmm. Call it 94. By the term, by the end of the nineties, by by just nineteen ninety nine, Internode had gone from zero to about ten thousand dial up customers in South Australia. Mm-hmm. Two thousand, roughly, was the point at which the real acceleration began. That that growth was was steady. Was steady mm-hmm. right? Two thousand was the point the broadband turned up in Australia. Um, it implemented as a thing called ADSL, mm-hmm. the point where you start yeah. delivering megabits a second over over those phone lines, many megabits a second, not just kilobits a second. Um, and by the way, the way you do that is by remembering that you don't just have to carry sound, you can use a much wider band than you can, than the human ear can hear. And if you use the yeah. entire possible frequency band, not just the bit that the ears can hear, you can do 24 megabits, okay. not five, not 56 kilobits. Right? Uh, okay. So that's what those devices do. You can't hear them, they use the whole line. So 2000 ADSL turned up, Telstra started deploying it, and then people like us started putting our own ADSL gear and exchanges over the next little while. But the point is that 2000s when broadband hit, you had a country already keyed up with dial-up wanting to go faster. So that's the point where we, again, reinvested pretty much all the cash we had in buying hardware and deploying it in every capital city to interface into the Telstra ADSL network and then to start to build our own. And... Again, through through everything, it going from ten thousand customer South Australian dial-up ISP to being a national broadband internet oh. provider. And between two thousand and two thousand and ten, we went from zero broadband customers to two hundred thousand, and that's this enormous acceleration began. Everyone wanted it, and it wasn't about marketing stuff; it was about holding on, mm. and trying to keep the quality high. Something I really care about yeah. is quality. I think it's one of the reasons Internode succeeded. Yeah, you know, different different rabbit hole. But 
it was an amazing ride and we were set up for it because we were already an internet service provider. Mm -hmm. So we got on with it and we were ground floor on that start of that growth curve, which is fantastic. It was oh. a great ride. So you mentioned marketing. Yep. And you did no marketing. So how did people find out about this stuff? Right. Two ways. Word of mouth. Yeah. Um, really, we were a word of mouth marketing company. I've always had this huge belief that if you deliver a very high quality product, people will tell their friends. Yeah. And, and I know we talked about this the other day that there's also two sorts of businesses broadly if you want to scale a business up. Yeah. Very high mar very high, mar high margin, relatively low numbers of customers yep. or very low margin, very high numbers of customers like it. a supermarket, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with either business, but we, we, we wanted to do the high, the high quality one. Nonetheless, we found ourselves in an enormous growth curve as well. Mm. So sudden, that's how the business Well, your S-curve would look like a vertical it line. Went, yeah, <laughs> we, were, we were signing up 8,000, 9,000 customers a month in the middle of that. From, and it was So every month we were adding – With this, no marketing. No, like, so every month in the middle of that we were adding the number of customers it took us six years to build in dial-up, right, 90, yeah. from, from 1994 to 2000, yeah? Yeah, Just, wow. So – no direct marketing. Our, our friends told their friends. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens in the geeky world is that if you've got the designated geek in your family and they get asked who they recommend as an internet provider, they're going to recommend one that works well so they don't have to hold their family's hand later when it breaks. Yeah. It's self-interest. Correct. Right? Yeah. The marketing we did do in the end was actually credibility-based marketing. In the era before social media, yeah. there was web forums, right? Yeah. There were just discussion forums on, on web pages, yeah. which still exist as well, right? Mm -hmm. But they're distinct to social media, which, which feels about you know, building followers and, and wearing bikinis. You'd look good in one. No. <laughs> there you go. Web forums are one of those places where people discuss things. And there was a web yeah. forum in Australia called Whirlpool. Oh, everyone knows Whirlpool. Right. Well, I was, in, I was involved in Whirlpool from the early days. And it was a place where... Internet broadband customers would discuss the trials and tribulations of making this shit work. Mm. I did, and but generally with anonymous. You'd have to scroll through yeah, all the different. But generally yeah. with anonymous handles, you know, talking yeah. talking about yeah. lambasting various ISPs, right? I did something which seemed obvious to me, but at the time was unusual. I I registered an account there in my real name with my real affiliation as someone who ran a little broadband company, yeah. <laughs> and I just started answering people's technical questions about how this stuff worked. Yeah. Brilliant, mate. What happened? It's educational. Yeah, mate. and what happened over the next 10 years? Incre yeah, exactly. Yeah. In hindsight, it looks planned, but it wasn't. I wound up for the longer, longest time I was one of the top 10 top ten posting rate people on Whirlpool by quantity. Yeah. Right? They kept a leaderboard. By the time Were you I, busy enough though? Like <laughs> this, no, but this is really deep. It's yeah. actually really deep. I was, but this was incredibly useful. Yeah. I'm a very fast typist right. and I've become a fast typist. Um, um, interesting interesting um, silly, silly statement, right? Um, I live like I type, fast with lots of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I know the feeling. So here's the thing. I'm on Whirlpool doing that and people start interacting with me and start telling me about things that don't work on Internode. Mm. And so I'd fix them in plain sight, interactively with these people on that web forum, right? And people would suggest yeah. things and I'd fix them and tell me it was wrong and I'd fix it. And that built enormous credibility. Mm. By the time I was done with that journey, I'd made over 30,000 posts on Whirlpool because it keeps track of that number. Yeah, wow. And I lived in it and I lived in it as a combination of, in hindsight, credibility-based marketing but also real-time feedback about whether your internet service is working. Mm. Those people would tell you if the internet was down yeah. and you could actually – you could fix it real quick. Yeah. It was – How are they writing it, was, it if they were – Well, they were. then they, di <laughs> they dial up, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but the point is that, that it became a feedback loop between yeah. me and my customers 
I wound up with our key technical support people also then, highly involved on, on Whirlpool. Mm. I hired my first great tech support leader in Internode from Whirlpool because yeah, he was wow. so good at this stuff. I wound up saying, can you just come and do Generally, this with us? That's amazing. Um, and that feedback loop and that credibility and that reality just just amplified the credibility of what we were doing and the believability of it isn't, incredibly well. Isn't that an amazing lesson for anyone? It works so well. Who's building a business or trying to grow a yeah. business? Just be yourself, be honest, but be out there and, and be it, prepared to be criticised. Yeah. Here's the cool thing: if but you, you get, were just consulting, right? Yeah, like, yeah, that's exactly for free, which is yeah, like, right. But if you, but if you, if, if people tell you in public what sucks about your business in that environment, the, the big learning for me was they weren't trying to bring me down. They wanted me to fix it. Yeah. And if you respond to that by fixing it, credibility goes through the roof. Oh. It's, it's astonishing, right? If you respond to it by running away and pretending it's not there, if it's mm. a political thing, then you will get yeah. rightly lambasted. Well, because people can accept that, that yeah. you can make a mistake. You, you, Just hurry up and course, fix it, right? <laughs> so Whirlpool was the marketing. That's brilliant. So in this, like the world of exponential growth, yep. right, like the word exponential growth and chaos yep. are thrown together <laughs> and entwined so beautifully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for good reason, right? But from your point of view, how did you guys manage through what would have been chaos, mm. surely? Yeah, it was quite a journey. It was really quite a journey. Um, and one of the ways I managed through it is realising that no individual person can be great at every aspect of a business. Oh, you're yeah, here. Right? <laughs> and so the, the conscious decision I made was I said, look, I, I'm a good communicator, I'm good, I'm good with technology, I love being a technical leader. I don't really love being a people leader other than by side effect of, of hopefully inspiring people who are geeks by doing good geeky right. things, right? So very early on I hired a CEO. Okay. So I was the managing director, but I was not the CEO, interestingly. Mm. I deliberately hired another another lovely man whose name's Pat Tapper um, in, in the second company of Internode. We actually had a near-death experience, but after the near-death experience, hired Pat. Pat's <coughs> the one that grew the business from, at that point, 20-something people to just under 500 on the on the books by the time we, we ultimately sold sold the company to INET. Mm. So he built the business as a business, as a, as a thing that has a structure, that has... HR that has resources, that has departments, yeah. that has so all of the stuff you need. Solid foundation. Right. When you've gone from in that 10 years, 20 people to 500 yeah. along with the customer growth to keep up with the customer growth. And, and two-thirds of those people were in were in tech support. And, and so here's, payments, a, right? here's a lesson. So, so the answer is I hired someone so with the competency that I didn't have and trusted him brilliant. to do that. I love it. Really, really important. Very important lesson. So yep. question to that then. Yep. Would you would Internode have been what it was if that didn't if you if you went nah I'm holding this I'm by myself no it would have failed yeah it really? would have failed and is that the near death experience that you're talking no, it about isn't. it is okay no it would have failed because I would have been crap at it and I wouldn't wouldn't have been able to actually manage the business mm. and it would have made me sad and I would have stopped <laughs> you know or I would have you know would have had a heart attack or I would have or or the business would have performed so badly that it wouldn't have succeeded because it was justifiably crap yeah right and and I think it was justifiably the opposite the near death experience was before that right which was actually that um, back when it was still a dial-up ISP, late 90s, uh, I, I reached a point where uh, I, I was in a relationship with a lady who was in Boston, one of the side effects of travelling to the US a lot, right? I got to meet Americans and some of those Americans were nice people. Yeah. And I can tell Human you that a long-distance relationship between Adelaide and Boston 
is a hard thing to manage. Yeah. It was 28 hours door to door because yeah. I used to actually do the trip. Yeah, that's, wow. that was brutal, right? Uh, but it's a, I was it's not a cheap day, right? And, and no, <laughs> and, and I and I was getting distracted with that because I'm a human being. Um, yeah. In the end, it didn't work out nicely, and I, that that actually got me even more distracted. Mm. And so, in the meantime, we we needed in there to keep running. When for a year or so, my brain was out to lunch, and I wasn't really involved in running it at all. Right? I was around, but my brain wasn't really home. Mm. Right? I was a sad puppy dealing with sad puppy things that had happened yep. in my life. Yeah. So, we took. One person we had in the business at the time, we promoted them to being the CEO, mm-hmm. um, one of our salespeople at the time um, in, the, in that, that software that was yeah. still being sold. Yeah, yeah. And it turned out to be the wrong decision. One of the things you can really easily do is promote people beyond their level of competency and or beyond their level of comfort, mm-hmm. right? And it was a knee-jerk reaction. It was wrong. And a year later, I figured out that she was solving every problem by hiring more people and spending more money, doing it badly, hadn't admitted that to me. Yeah. And... I had this wake-up call when I realised that the business was actually sitting there with the classic problems, right? Mounting debts, everything was going pear-shaped, we were going to die. No cash flow. Yeah. Right, we were going to die. And I wound up having to we, – we had to take the business from 20 people back to 10, had, had the day when yeah. half, the, half the staff got laid Ouch. off. Ouch. And spent the next year hand-managing every fucking bill, <laughs> climbing yeah. back out of that hole. Ouch. The second time we went past... And for someone who hated that. And someone who hated that with a passion. The second time we climbed past 15 people, we didn't stop before 500. Yeah, wow. Right? Because I was damn sure I was going to hire somebody brilliant at doing that process. Yeah. And it wasn't that person's fault. We put them in a situation where they failure. were... We set them up for failure. Yeah. Right. My fault, not hers. Yeah. That's important. I right? 100% agree. The question I am going to ask you, though, mm-hmm. which... Um, is one that's probably not talked about enough, right. uh, but is a key contributor to culture yep. of a business, to leadership, to everything, yeah. which is your personal life as a leader yep. entwining with the business. With the business, absolutely. What lessons did you learn yeah. from that? Yeah, we are all real people, Daniel. Yeah, and, and the other parts of our life, in a business sense. I was going to say get in the way, which is not the right way to not the right way to frame it at all. But the point is that they don't they don't interact necessarily well with the business. I, I, another phrase I remember reading somewhere, and I'm fond of it, which is that when people talk about the notion of work life balance, what they should be doing is talking about work life separation, mm. because in fact the work the work actively damages the life, yeah. the rest of your life, and it's got worse, not better, in the last decade. Mm. You know, now we're expected to have the gadgets on all the time, you know, are expected to be interruptible. That expectation is extremely toxic mm. and I think should be banned. Mm. And the problem is that we all train ourselves into that. You get the dopamine hit every time you get another message and you want to keep getting another message in, right? It's, it's actually all the tools let you shut those things off. And if people like Apple are getting better at making it easier for you to do that automatically, which is great because yeah. you need to. You need to shut it off. You need to have a life, otherwise why bother working, right? We don't we, – you and I, I suspect, don't want to be like Steve Jobs, right, whose life was defined by his work in a positive mm. sense, I think. But that was so much of his life. Um, the rest of us would like to have, I think, you know, a family and dogs and cats yeah. and fish. And well, I mean, it's really it, important to appreciate those things are separate of the business and try your hardest to make space for them. And it sounds like a platitude because it's a true one. And, again, if you delegate, come back, just let me come back to this, that idea of hiring a CEO – I'm very strong on the notion of delegating everything that you're not passionate about to someone else 
if you do that and if you build enough culture around what you're doing, you can be absent from that for a while without damaging the business. Yeah. That's the key. You can. And so when you need to be, you should then go and do it, right? None of us are, none of us are machines and we shouldn't be. What if – so this applies to not just the CEO level. No, to anyone. Any, anyone any in, leadership role. Yes, yes. Any yes. – I think, I mean – you and I, Any role where you take the, where you take the problems home with you in your head, even if you don't want to, because you have to, because, correct? Because you're the one that feels like you have to. But let's talk about leader. I mean, a big big yep. part of our listener base are leaders. Yep. If they are in a position that they, or even entrepreneurs, right, who start right. their own business, uh, and you're not the first that I've heard that said I actually need to um, put a new CEO in. Actually, yep. we did a podcast. Yep. Last week with David Fogarty, who I don't know if you, you've probably not heard of this, but he's built an e-commerce brand that's a $400 million business online and he, it's selling blankets and oodies. I don't yeah, know if right. you've heard of oodies. It's here in South Australia and he's made the decision recently, he announced it on the podcast that he's yeah. looking to get a CEO because, again, that chaos was, yeah, yeah. was all yeah. part of it, right? Yeah. What if the self-awareness is not, not there mm-hmm. as number one, right? Right. So first question, what is what if the self-awareness of the individual – obviously you had the self-awareness to yep. go, this is not me, this right, is not right. what and, I love. And, and when, I, when I do these things, it makes me feel sad. Correct. So don't do them, yeah. right? But what if you really <laughs> like – if you like the idea of right. being – Right, you like the there. idea of being the head honcho, yeah. you like the idea of holding all the pieces. Correct. Yes, and I think that is actually a fantastic way to have your business fail. <laughs> some people get away with it but the people that get away with it are rare yeah right yeah uh, because if you're not passionate about that thing you're going to do a bad job of it or it's going to make you sad while you do it and wishing you were doing something else mm. all of which is a waste of the one thing you and i don't have more of which is hours minutes time. seconds time right correct the one irreplaceable thing so yeah. delegate the shit out of it mm. you've got to but it's very common you're right that thing of wanting to say well i'm Damn it, I started the business, right? Yeah. I want to be the CEO. I want to wear the big hat. I'm the big boy. I want to wear the big pants, big pants and the big hat, right? I deliberately didn't want to wear the big pants and the big hat. Yeah. I wanted to change the world and I could do that by throwing bright ideas at my CEO and getting him to execute them. Yeah. Right? What does that relationship look like, the managing director and a CEO? Yeah. Um, for, for me and Pat, it was extremely effective. It okay. was just high trust. Yeah. We trusted each other. Pat trusted my technical ideas that I was going to actually be, be taking the big, the big picture ideas about Let's get into broadband. Let's get into this. Let's do yeah. that. That they were rational things to do. That mm-hmm. I was an expert in that realm, and I trusted him that he would grow the business appropriately in terms of staff and staff management to support yeah. that need. So it's two pipelines working together, yeah. really. Yes, it? and and I absolutely just trusted him to do it. Was he a technical uh, guru? In no. The, no, so he no. was a people person, a people business person. person. He was a people person, so the business specifically had, designed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was. Role. He was. He was um, in a in a senior management role in. Um, business in the AV industry before we hired him into, into Internode. Right? He was a great people person. And that was, and knew so how was, to build business. He, he liked technology, you know, AV, AV industry, right? Correct. He liked technology as a thing. Yeah. But he was not a geek. Yeah. And he didn't need to be a geek. And it meant because he wasn't a geek, there was actually never any conflict about whether I had the right geeky idea because I was, I was the head geek. And that's the bit I did want. Yeah. And the bit I did hold. And Internode was built in the shape of what, what my geeky brain said it needed to be. Yeah. Hiring a CEO and delegating a whole lot of things gave me the ability to pull those strings, yeah. right, to actually achieve that. It gave me leverage. And mm. what you need to build a big business is levers. Mm. And you need to appreciate that the levers involve other people. You've got to. 
I've convinced other people successfully at times to do this to their so I claim their benefit, right? That, that, that you can't have a big business where you're the CEO unless unless being a CEO is your superpower. Mm. And for some people it is, right? But then they need to hire really good people under them to do the rest of the work. Because mm. I saw a nice definition of what CEO is, right? Which is make everybody happy. Mm. <laughs> there's not there's no other JD for a CEO. Yeah. And the point about that is make everybody happy in the face of everyone around you being 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 likely to carry you a reason why you're about to become sad that they need you to fix. Mm. Right? No, this, you know, this person's nasty, we need to get rid of him. This has happened, that's wrong. I need more money. Yeah. I, you know, I want to go and leave. Whatever it is, right? Um, yeah, that's that. Make people happy. Make people happy. Whilst, and if, and if that's whilst not, working to the objective. Yeah, right? exactly. Right, yeah. Exactly. But, but in a lot of ways, I think a good CEO, especially if a large company, isn't by definition running the business. They are running the senior management team and the culture. Yeah. And it's the senior management team that are running the business. Correct. And if you don't trust them to be, then bloody fire them and hire people that you do trust mm. because you're not doing it right. So, oh, there's so much in this. What what oh, about is. if you can't afford to bring in those really great people, like from right. a right. in that Just growth can't. space, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is this is a challenge. And I was lucky in the internode space that the, the growth rate was so high, and the investments I made initially in hardware mm. worked so well that that we didn't have debt. We could actually just do it yeah. good old fashioned way. Yeah. In the modern world, there's a tendency to use you know, to, to use venture capital or otherwise yeah. to to do it. So one of the ways is that you know mm-hmm. go to in fact, that in a lot of ways, that's the most effective way. And to, to, to explain the point, the other aspect about you get people that want to be the CEO and want to run everything, the other equivalent piece of that is ownership stake in mm-hmm. businesses. You have people that quite rationally, as people have started a business, especially if they started it on their own versus, versus a collaboration of two or three people. Right? If, you, if, you, if you're TGV, that company I was mentioning before, two guys in a vax, <laughs> that started out as a 50-50 thing. Yeah. So they already had in their heads the notion that they were each owning a smaller chunk than 100% in order to collectively build a bigger pie, right? As a sole founder, I think it's worth considering that is usually still the right answer there too. If you need the capital, if you don't have the cash, one of the ways of doing it is is to use equity instead, right? Mm. It's to sell a share of the business to somebody. Either because that somebody, you might might actually just, if if you think they're the right person to run the business, and you better be right about it in this case, you might hand them a chunk of equity in lieu of paying them enough money and say, I can't afford you, so how about I pay you half of what I can afford you or whatever, and, and you have a slice of the business. That's high risk, right? Yep. Because if they're, a bad, if they're a bad person at it, you know, now you've handed a chunk of the business to somebody you can't take back. Yeah, yeah. So the more conventional answer is, in fact, VC, right? It's to find an investor to hand a chunk of the business to. Now you've got some money in your pocket with which you can hire that CEO. And the point being, if you've hired the wrong CEO, fire them and hire the next one. Yeah, yeah. And this other person is an investor that now owns a chunk of your business. But it's that classic thing, and it's obvious, but I want to reiterate it. There's two ways to to make a large amount of money in business, right? To own 100% of a business that does decently well or to own 10% of a business that does fabulously well. Mm. To borrow a phrase a good friend of mine, John Lindsay, is fond of, money is fungible. Right? If those two paths gave you the same amount of money, neither is wrong. Mm. Except that one of them may be incompatible with the way your brain works. <laughs> that's true. So work out which one it's incompatible with. Take the one it's compatible with. Right? Mm. Internode grew. When Internode was sold, it was sold for the, the most astonishing amount of money, $105 million. Right? Um, In what year did you sell that? Uh, 2012. 2012. Yeah. Um, 
another another rabbit hole we could go down. I, actually, I'd agree, I'd, I agree to sell it, yeah, net, I'd agree to sell it a year earlier and then I changed my mind, um, which <laughs> and wasn't, what, wasn't public at the time. No, I decided I didn't want to. But but here's the point. Did the price go up after? Or no, or? down. Down. Down, except it went up. Okay. Um, ah, ah yeah. right, right. So I'll see if I can hold these threads. Um, actually, let me start with that one. This is a the, whirlpool conversation, right? Yeah, There's no, so many different yeah, threads. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So, so yeah, that second time, what I insisted with INET was that half the sale proceeds were in INET shares. Mm-hmm. And INET, as a matter of policy, never did that. Mm-hmm. They only required their targets in cash. Mm-hmm. But I said, the only way you get me is that way. And, and I own the last largest privately held ISP left. Mm-hmm. And so they reluctantly agreed to do that. So that 105 million wound up being worth more than that because the INET share half of that actually quadrupled over the next few years. Yeah, okay. So I accidentally made a good business decision. You did well. But, but here's the reason I did it because I wasn't really ready to sell yet. So what that kept me with was a minority ownership yeah. stake. And what I'm saying to you is even a minority ownership stake is still ownership. It's still, it's still involved. And you can still live very comfortably. And I still felt like. I was a beneficiary of some yeah. of my actions, right, yeah. as a shareholder. You've had a good Does that few make stories. Sense? I did, absolutely. Yeah. You've had a few good stories which, in relation to the shares because with the whole Tesla thing, you yeah. were… Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought yeah. as many Tesla shares as I could afford, as early as I could afford them, not as a business decision but because I believed in the damn product and, it, and I believed in Elon. Yeah. I saw white, white to the eyes. He was not going to fail. I had no idea it would become the answer to the question 10 years ago, what stock should you have bought if you wanted the largest return in the NASDAQ ever? Yeah. It's you, Tesla, yeah, right? Because it's like a thousand times. Return. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a crazy number. Um, but it was just out of belief. Anyway, we digress. Kudos. For, for, yeah. So, so uh, in regards, like, like Elon, that could have been worth zero. Absolutely. So there was another, when you were talking about through the different options of hiring, uh, bringing a CEO, giving, yep. him, giving them some share, um, yeah, or no, or to be clear, if if you're not sure if that's the right CEO, actually, no, the, the one I prefer is actually the other one, which is actually no, get a business investor who believes in your business, sell them a share of the business, and yeah. then use that cash to buy the CEO you want to hire. Yeah, so that if that CEO is the wrong one, you can change them. Well, that that's different a... to the ESOP concept, right? Like the yeah. American concept of of handling of handing a small amount of shares to senior management. Yeah. I think that's a great idea, and then if that's the wrong person, that's okay. They've walked off with three percent of your company. Yes, yeah. right. But what I was referring to earlier was the idea that if you if you needed to hand you know a third of the company to somebody then, in lieu of money, well, then that's could, a big risk. Well, I was thinking you could structure in a way that if they hit their targets, then they activate. Actually, the, that's true. Yes, activate. No, you're right. Shares, you can do it yeah. that way too. You can set up a vesting structure. Mm. The downside for that person is that means that if you fire them, they've got nothing for their efforts. Yeah. So if they're smart about it, they'd want to negotiate something in the middle. Correct. Which is why, on in hindsight, I reckon it's actually simpler to find an investor who wants to put money in your business because you can convince them it's a rational business, just needs the cash to hire the right CEO to accelerate it yep. and then use the cash to hire the CEO. And that's a perfectly rational business plan that any rational investor will look at and say, yeah, I get that. Yes, that's an incredibly rational use of funds mm. because then you won't explode, Yeah. right? And if you explode, that's not good for the business. No. Yeah. Great ideas, absolutely. Can yeah. in that in amongst all this growth and chaos and everything that and you you know you so you've hired the CEO, yep, um, who obviously was instrumental in that S curve going uh, yep. to a, to that vertical line. Was there any 
defining moments during this period of growth that, that really stick with you? You know, was there one piece of advice? Was there one course that you did, like a piece of learning that you did, one decision that you made outside of the CEO? Was there one thing or a multiple few things that you just remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's that's the game changer? In terms of surviving that growth? Mm. Yeah, interesting. Was in terms of what enabled the growth? Right. And enabled you because, like, on that growth curve, we, we it was you, a weird situation. You can like, actually really make a lot of mistakes, and you can. And, and and the weird situation was that we were not encouraging the growth. We were not marketing ourselves. Mm. The growth was coming at us because it was right place, right time. Right, and people were converting themselves from dial up to broadband. Yeah, and so to, to what I'm what I'm getting at is that one of the ways you can deal with growing too fast is to slow the marketing down a bit so the phone calls slow down a bit so you can keep up, right? We weren't doing any marketing. That tap was turning itself yeah, off. So. so the entire thing was hanging on by your fingernails. <laughs> that's and amazing. You know, like that's what a, dreams it, are made actually, of. Exactly. It? Like, it was astonishing, right? Mm. And it wasn't about getting rich. It was about holding on. And what does holding on mean? I have this strong belief in doing the best possible job in terms of quality of what we were doing. Mm. We were very strong on um, high, you know, high support quality, high network quality. It meant that we bought our own gear nationally to keep the quality of the, of the thing going, right, mm-hmm. to control the outcome. Mm-hmm. That's what led us to get this hyper growth phase to happen because we we're actually bloody good at it. Yep. So what we did, Pat just kept hiring enough people to keep up with the rate. We wrote all our own internal software to, to manage the process of, of, of dealing with people. So we automated everything we could very much automated everything we could. We had to. So did every other ISP in that situation, yeah. I might add. Yeah. Um, all bespoke software because the industry was too new. You couldn't buy stuff to do this. We, so, so key bits of the code were written by people, including me, mm-hmm. to, to, to manage that growth. Yeah, wow. To manage accounting and tech support and everything else. And look, I'd say to you, we just, we just hung on and we were honest about what we were doing and where we did have a choice about not intentionally accelerating growth, we would hold back from until we could actually keep up. Mm. with the rate. Uh, was there so, ever a point where you were just saying, no, okay, we can't do that? Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting question. As a more general statement, one of the, the, the piece of business knowledge that's worth appreciating is if you've got a choice between doing the right thing by your current customers or doing the right thing by customers that aren't, by people that want to become customers, you need to keep doing the right thing by your current customers as priority. Yeah. You need to not piss them off for having supported you early. Versus yeah. someone who's just turned up in the door supporting the yeah. plate. Right? I think that's that's a, and there's a lot of customer yeah. experience things. Like it's yeah. critical to understand where someone is on their on their journey, journey right? And especially thing. since our signups were predicated on references from existing customers, you, they want to be the people you prioritize the experience of. Mm. Um, so, in fact, in fact, to answer your question, there were situations where we suspended signups in particular geographic areas because our network was full. Okay. Right? Yep. And it's really important. This is this is this is that lesson embodied. It was really important that we didn't produce crap performance for the people we currently had mm-hmm. by signing up even more people and boiling that frog even harder yeah. until we could make that network link bigger. Mm-hmm. So we would actually suspend signups in, in geographic areas if the link to that area wasn't capable of to preserve the quality of the experience of the people we were already that were already paying us money, yeah. right? Really important. Makes sense. Right. Um, the other point about Internode and the success factor for it becoming successful, by the way, is it happens to be a subscription-based business. 
And again, that's good luck. That's just what I knew how to build, yeah. right? But subscription-based business versus, say, lawyers, yeah. right, who charge by the hour. Yeah. So when you're not working, you're not, you're not earning money. Yeah. The beautiful thing about internet access is people are paying by the month. And even if they have a, even if you do deliver them a bad month, it takes a lot of sustained bad results to cause them to actually bother to change because yeah. they're all real people with real lives. Yeah. And sure, they might be annoyed and think, oh, I'm paying 10 bucks too, too much for this thing and I should change to someone else. But then, but then the phone rings yeah, or the dog yeah. bites your foot or the yeah. kid comes home from school and you yeah. get on with something that matters. Yeah. So you're making can, money while you sleep, right? Right, the right. Entrepreneur's Correct. dream. And, and so subscription businesses like ISPs are an instance of that, which is fabulous. Yeah. And also very large number of customers spending a relatively small amount each produces enormous income stability. They will not all simultaneously get the shits with you. Mm-hmm. And even on days when we had to put the prices up and, and, and the messaging on Whirlpool would say, the people on Whirlpool would, would try to convince me, I'm leaving and everyone else is leaving. When you looked at the numbers at the end of the month, yeah, maybe the, the churnout rate had gone up from 2% to 3% that month. Mm-hmm. Right, like, like in the real world, yeah. people other than the ones on Whirlpool with no lives including me, yeah. have lives yeah. and don't leave unless they unless <laughs> it actually isn't working, they won't leave. Now, you don't want to burn that credit. No. You want to fix it, but you get the idea. I get the idea. Yeah. Which brings me to a question around values then. Like, right. Is there <laughs> – Yeah, and it was a very strong values, value story for me. Yeah, and so did you – was values a really big piece of your puzzle when trying to create and grow this business? Yes, yes, hugely. And what – what emphasis did you put on values as a business? Well, in my case, the values were about the things that led me to be on Whirlpool, right? They were about, about actually about honesty and accountability and openness, yeah. which is something I believe in um, and, and some of the inspiration I've got from, from various other businesses that have done that. You know, that. And that's a choice, not a requirement, right? mm-hmm. to be that open. I valued that openness. I had a very strong ethos about delivering high-quality customer outcomes and believing that that would cause people to sign up. And so everything was about that. When my, and my team got to realise that culturally, if they would give me two options for how to upgrade something, I would take the one that produced the better result even if it cost more yeah. because in the end that was why we were all there. We were at, and we felt, Daniel, we felt at that time that the industry felt like in a good sense we were the cowboys and, and Telstra were the, were, the, were the annoying big Indians, right, mm. um, or, or the reverse. The entire internet industry, other than Telstra, was united in that period and would, in fact, help each other. Mm. Um, and there's not collusion, that's cooperation. Things like things called internet exchanges where we would connect our pipes together yeah. to get better economics when our customers wanted to talk to customers in another ISP. Mm. Um, so I was a co-founder of a thing called the South Australian Internet Exchange that yeah. did that. Right? Yeah. We do that because we had a common enemy. The common enemy was Telstra, who was who represented not not. It was em- David David and Goliath. David and Goliath, yeah. exactly. And it was not enmity in the sense of they weren't bad people. They were big, boring, blancmange people. <laughs> they represented a lack of innovation and a lack of a lack of coolness yeah. that we would exploit. And so culturally, we really felt like we were the good guys building good things for good people. And that culturally, it drove all of us. We felt like if we did a great job, we'd go home at night feeling happy and our customers would reward us by staying as customers. Mm. And it worked. Mm. Now, not all businesses allow you to do that. But this one did and that era did. Right now, at the end of that 10 years, right, the internet internet broadband industry was saturated. Saturated meaning like mobiles are now, right? Meaning if you wanted broadband and you could get broadband, you already had it. So now it was just about businesses 
growth rates having come all the way off, the S-curve stopped. Yeah. Now you're about eating each other's young. Yeah. That's a completely different world. And yeah. that's broadly the period in which I sold the business into INET for okay. a variety of reasons. But one of them was that the music had stopped. Yeah. And the music that, that drove me mm. had run out. Yeah. Right? Because that race was incredibly invigorating. Yeah. That so, race to keep up. Well, I think that's part of the, you know, you said yeah. there's a, earlier in this conversation, you said there's a few type of people that want to start their own right, business. Right, right. And now right. I was getting this huge reward for it. Yeah, right? and there's an element of me because I have started my own and there's an element of me that thinks the chase mm. is more exciting than the end game. And, and what I've just told you is, is yes. It's exactly that, yes. right. And yeah. so when the nature of the business shifts, you need to evaluate whether this new journey is the one you want to stay on or not. Mm. Now, it turns out I actually sold in for a related but different reason, which mm. is actually the NBN coming in. Yeah. It drove the economics of the industry in a way that meant that I needed to either buy another company or be bought or the company would have died economically yeah. in a saturated world. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, hind, the, the other part of it you've just correctly drawn out, which is the nature of the game had changed. Yeah. That, that era had ended. Correct. And now it was no longer hard. In the middle of that journey, building broadband in Australia was hard and fun and exciting and we were we, when we got a carrier licence and we literally started digging up holes in the street and laying optical fibre in there because we needed to accelerate the rate of getting pipes in the ground. So we started putting our own pipes in as well, literally oh, digging wow. up the ground. Um, and it was fun. Yeah. You know, we, we became genuine plumbers. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, the not, world just, was, not just theoretical plumbers. Well, the world was your oyster. There yeah, was yeah. no one really dictating what you were doing. Ooh. Then, yeah, exactly. Then when the competition comes in, like really comes in and the game changes, mm. now you've got to follow yeah. a process and you exactly. got to Exactly. But again, think about halfway up the yeah. S-curve when all we can do is keep up. There's no issue about chatting to the other ISP of your sort no. up the road because yeah. we're, both, we're both, our shared enemy is both the sheer boring nature of Telstra and they're, they're the customers you want, you're going to steal, yeah. right, and the fact that we're so busy keeping up, the last thing we need to do is compete with him. Yeah. With what we were competing with, to come back to an earlier point, was ourselves. Yeah. The competition was can we actually grow this business without it exploding? Yeah. It was that hard it was, and that exciting. Well, yeah. Internet coming out, yeah. everyone wants it, right? Yeah. It's a novelty. Now it's just the. Yeah, now, now, it's, now it's a non-negotiable. Now, now it is at finally the thing that we knew it would become, but it's become it, right, which is that it comes out of the walls and it also comes out of the air. Yeah. And so my kids are astonished if they can't get broadband you know, in the car or in the plane halfway to Tasmania. Yeah. Because it's not quite in coverage right now. Mm. Yeah, like, well, you know, this used to be hard. Yeah. yeah sure, Dad. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah, it used to be really hard. That's unbelievable. I love it. So you talked about culturally, culture a few times in that yeah. conversation just then. For me, we work in a business, so Synergy IQ, the business that I mm. run and operate is the we're, we're a consulting company that really specialise in complex change. In complex change, you can imagine culture is sort of yeah, falls into a huge that space. So we, sure. So, so I want to ask you a question about that in, in the sense that what lessons did you learn about culture in that exponential growth period? And how important was it to the, to the growth of your business? Yeah, I think culture is tremendously important. I also think it's something you can't force. Correct. You really can't, right? I it, I would claim to you, hopefully accurately, that Innernode's culture reflected my own, right? It reflected mm. the, the beliefs we were talking about, the values we were talking mm -hmm. about, my beliefs and my values. I started the company, you know, duh. Yeah. But it is important that you communicate those values, but the way you communicate them, in my opinion, isn't with words, it's with actions. Mm-hmm. And so I would, 
I was highly involved. Right? I was not an ivory tower person. I would be writing bits of code in the process of us trying to fix software. I'd be out, yeah. out doing things. All of my team, I would say to you, knew that they couldn't pull the wool over my eyes in terms of software engineering because yeah. I've written a whole lot of software. Now, the latter half of the Internode career, I didn't write anything particularly. Yeah. But I still could and I still understood it, so I couldn't be fooled in a positive sense, right? But it meant I could be a team player. I could, If someone in the technical realm could explain to me that a problem was hard, I, 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 they could trust that I, that, that, that I believed them. Yeah. So demonstrate the culture you've got by doing it is, is you know, I've, I certainly tended, to the extent I led, it was I'd lead by doing stuff and mm. hoping that the examples I left behind were things people would correctly emulate. Yeah. I think all businesses work that way successful business in culture terms, right? Apple, yeah. Apple to this day is a business that does what every Apple staff member believes Steve would have done. Mm. Yeah. For better and worse, yeah. right? But my God, there's a culture. That is. Yeah. As an entrepreneur startup business or even a – let's just call it any business that yeah. has a fast-paced moving yep. leadership group. Right, so it's yep. this play hard type yep. scenario, work, work hard, play hard, or work hard, play hard type scenario, right? Yeah. There are some people that can't move at that pace. Right. Nor do they want to. Right. Uh, you would have seen that happen a quite a fair amount in your time, right, where you're a 100 miles per hour getting shit done, yeah. solving problems, and then so you set that expectation that this is how it gets done. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And, and, and it leads to almost a toxic expectation in, in some modern businesses that everyone else is going to run on the same as hours that you are. Correct. I, never, I never worked that way. Mm. I never expected that of other people. But it's the, it's the example thing because you sort of yes. lead by example yes. then by you, by the nature of the beast and yeah. the, yeah, the want it. and desire to grow – I, I th- what I'd say to you, I think, is that at least in Internode's case, I think people self-selected whether that was the journey they wanted to stay on or not. Mm. Right? And if it was too much for them, they'd, they'd shift. And I would say to you, and I hope this is true, that the business as a business would not blame people for leaving work at work and going home mm. and having a life. All the, the geeks geeks are the worst at doing that. <laughs> they tend to take it all home. Well, but they, plenty of the things that they the go home of, from a computer all day. Yeah, but the stuff the in the rest of the business, like you know, the accounts team would go home at five o'clock, and nothing would happen until nine o'clock on Monday morning, and that's fine. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I what I'm saying is that I would never want, to, never have wanted to blame someone for not for not deciding that they needed to have a life as well as having a business. And I think the business needs to be compassionate in doing that. If someone wants to keep working hard, they're allowed to, but shouldn't be forced to. So. I think I want to hope that we were pretty good about that. No, I, I I think that morally you wouldn't have yeah expected but, people to and right. But the example of Simon, you know, living on Whirlpool all correct. the time would certainly drive a lot of the geeks in the organisation to feel like they, they had to do the same. And how do you manage that? I don't think I did manage it. Mm. I think I just let it happen. Mm. And what an individual does about that is up to them. You're Again, adults, right? But right. But what I wouldn't do and what I think some American hyper sort of hyper-growth startups do do is I wouldn't be running around the corridors building a culture of saying you can't go home, you're not finished yet, Yeah, right, right. of actually of actively blaming people or berating them for stopping. Yeah. Because yeah. that's useless in my opinion. 
but, I, that, but not, not a university held belief, right? And by way of agreeing with you, some of the, it's clear that some of the sort of hypergrowth US startups, it's absolutely, you know, stay on that bus or, or go home, you know, yeah. get off the bus. Yeah. Well, the, the legal it was profession, never like, um, it was never like that. Definitely in that space, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I never, never wanted to drive a culture like that. If people inferred that from my activity, I couldn't necessarily stop them, but it was never an explicit thing of me saying, you must be as welded to this business as I am. Mm. Right? I would never have said that. It's, it's funny because if you're a founder, a CEO, a managing director, someone in a position of leadership, yeah. and you walk in through a room mm. and you say something like, that table would probably look better over there, right? And you're just ha, saying uh-huh. it yes. because yes, it's a I, uh, yes. You know where I'm going. The next I day, do. you come back, the table's, the table's moved. moved. What, that so used to happen. It happens everywhere. Yes, I agree with you. I remember being quite troubled by that. You're dead right that I'm I'm someone who absolutely likes to discuss thought balloons with people. Correct. And yes, it's very hard for people to hear the thought balloon and not infer an actual call to action. One hundred percent. Yeah. Some of that's always going to happen. I tried hard to communicate to my, especially the technical team I'd be throwing thought balloons around with, yeah. right, that that the thing I most wanted is to be told I'm wrong Yeah. because I am as fallible as you are. Correct. We are all fallible things, right? My my enormous non-work passion is, is flying things, right? Yeah. And aviation is an enormous example of the fact that not that you you can't be a great pilot by not making mistakes. You're a great pilot by not making a chain of mistakes. Mm. You will make a mistake. The trick is not to compound it with the next two or three. Yeah. Every fatal flying accident typically involves multiple failures, not one. Mm-hmm. You can blow one thing and, in fact, you blow one thing all the time, right, all the time. Mm. So the people I got on best with are the ones that figured out I really meant it when I wanted them to tell me that I was blowing smoke up their ass and I was wrong, yeah. I want to hear that. Yeah. It's the way I learn, the same way you do, right? It's by you, human beings learn from their mistakes and one of the challenges if you're the CEO of an organisation or, in my case, the technical director of it, is you don't want to get that God complex that says, because I happen to be the one that owns the shares and started the business, I'm therefore always right. In fact, the reality is, is can, can be the precise reverse. Yeah. Right? The, and, and the more that you are driven up that chain, the more disconnected you can be from the knowledge that used to make you right. Yeah. Agreed. And so, and it's, it's, so I just right. did it, my best to encourage my team oh, such a, to argue back. And, the, and, and, and they would see it. They would see that I enjoy the debate and that, that that's the point. You've got to. It's such a fine line. It though, is. Isn't it? And, and it's not something you can perfectly do. No. You just have to. You'd have to do the best you because can I, because I, you're absolutely right about that effect. Oh, without doubt, I think, and I I employ the uh, Steve Jobs attitude of hire great people and get them to tell you what yes. to do. Right, like yes. that. I, yes, I absolutely agree. believe that. Yeah, and in general, hiring people is an incredibly important decision. Yeah. If you haven't found the right person. And you desperately need somebody now, and you've got the second best person there. Don't hire them; mm. you regret it. Yeah, right. Like well, easiest rule, decision. I mean, Jim, easy, so easy to hire people, so hard to fire them. Jim Collins, good to great, right? Yeah. Get the first, rule number one is get the right people on the boat. You know, make, and, that that want to go in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And if you if you haven't found them yet, keep looking. Yeah. Don't don't hire rubbish people. You will regret it enormously. I love it. When we caught up last time 
I remember you said something that about the skill set needed for a business to be successful. Well, there's a couple of skill sets that you probably put high. It's about bringing people together and then working on what you're passionate about, yeah. which is obviously um, something that you really stuck to was yeah. doing what you're passionate yeah, yeah, about. But firstly, what, what's your definition of success? Because you said for a company to be successful, you need to bring people together and work on what you're passionate about. Yeah, and you need to be fortunate enough to be doing that in a manner that means that you achieve economic sustainability in doing it. Right? Yeah. It, it needs to be hopefully Correct. something that actually causes income to occur. But the distinction being are you – it's that classic one, right? Are you in business to make money or is making money the side effect of building a sustainable business? Mm. And for me it was always I, – I, I say to you it was always the latter. Right? Yeah. I wanted a sustainable business because being in my business was the reward of that day one passion to wanting to start a business, which mm. meant I wanted to be in business. Now, to, for the business to stay there, it means it needs to be sustainable. Correct. Which means you've got to earn enough money to make it sustainable. And I always chose the amount of money we charge for services, not on the basis of what the market price was, but on the basis of what we needed to charge for the business to be sustainable and to trust that enough people would choose to pay that more that money, even if it was more than the guy up the road. Yeah. There was a point in time where another company, the low-price leader in the internet game in that era, TPG, um, who um, there was a point where they released broadband plans at a price that just made no sense to me. Mm. Right? They were charging X dollars a month where I couldn't see how, how it was possible to yeah. match that price without losing money. And it wasn't about us having a more expensive cost structure. I just had no idea what he was smoking. And it caused me a great amount of irrits for a few yeah. And then I got up one morning and thought, no, that's okay. We just don't live on the same planet as him. Yeah. I don't care. We're going to charge what we need to charge to stay alive. And we just kept right on going and ignored him. Yeah. Right answer. Yeah. Right? Charge what you need. And if you fail, so be it. Yeah. Right? But but if you kill yourself, here's the thing. You can in a business of lots of competitors like we had, you can get this mutually assured destruction. Um Sinkhole problem, mm -hmm. right? That somebody drops their price to get more customers. Yeah. And the answer to their economics don't make any sense might be that they're idiots. Yeah. Or that they're loss leading. And either way, if you then match it, someone else looks at that and says, but Inanode, who are these expensive people have done? Shit, I better charge that too. Because, yeah. you know, and, and you get this, yeah. this kind of rabbit, this, this, this whirlpool effect. Like right? you said, the spiral. I think yeah. if you're just don't do it. in that scenario, just don't do someone it. like yourself, Using the internet example, TPG comes in, puts the prices down. Yep. You guys should double down on customer service. Damn straight. Right? You exactly. know, like it's, you, you play off. Exactly. And yeah. you say, look, it's more expensive, but there are things we can demonstrate that you Correct. achieve from that yeah. that matter yeah. that we will deliver to you. I agree. Beautiful. I, I, I love that. Um, so looking back, I want to get into another sort of, Part now, and this is sure. probably a good segue. But looking back, what were some of the most critical things that you learned about yourself through that growth and rise of Internode before you saw? Well, right. and now yep. looking back there, you yeah, saw. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did trust myself, and that worked, right? In other words, I trusted that the things I believed in were actually things that would cause the business to be sustainable. That yeah. obviously worked. Yeah, uh, and uh, and. You know, I had to learn like everybody that you, none of us are Superman. And some, sometimes, some days, some weeks, some months, you haven't got the motivation. You mm. If you've built a good enough business up around you, you can step out of that for a little while, and it won't and it won't die. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, there's something this this is, it was really deep learning for me. Right? There's a classic classic thing here. If you 
if you or a member of your staff is irreplaceable, you must figure out how to how to make that not the case as rapidly as possible, right? Mm. Like, you, like nobody's irreplaceable. Yeah, you cannot per, have that staff member. Key person, that you is. Can't, right? Right. And the answer to that is solve it. Don't live. And that it, right? that comes to the question of because then anyone because all of us can have a media hit us, correct. right? And various media's hit me over time, mm. like they hit all of us. Um, and we're all human beings. We're not perfect. That's well, that right. comes to your point of right. sustainability. Yeah. Actually, there was a question I was right. going to ask. That's company and sustainability yeah, and so mental sustainability. And 100%. So right. actually, can we just jump back quickly? Mm. Yep. Because uh, now you've said that, it's just gone, yeah, I need to ask this question, right? So sure. the the sustainability part of the business and you're saying you wanted to build this business that was sustainable. Right which is an absolute goal of mine as well, right? How yep. do you know when you are sustainable? What's the key critical factors that come into play that you know when you are sustainable? Yeah, I think uh, it's, well, that that you are making more money than you're spending. That helps, Correct. right? In other words, that, that you've achieved financial sustainability. But that can stop overnight, right? Then you're not. It can, but in a subscription-based business, it actually yeah, can't okay. stop So every overnight. business has to find right. out what that. Right, that is. So it's in a subscription-based business, as long as the product you're selling is still deliverable, then actually you're extremely sustainable, mm. right? So that's this useful thing. If, if the business is based on, on on delivering labor services to people, then your risks are around your own human availability and around that the market you're working into shifting. Yeah. Uh, but if you've got economic sustainability out of that, the other piece is what I was talking about with key man risk, right? Is yeah. You want to try and build a world where you can make yourself replaceable yeah. in a perfect world. Correct. Because otherwise, the problem with the, the problem of not doing that is the whole existential kind of load thing. And I feel, this is something I, sh- I feel like I should have felt, but it, but because I think we built a good business with a CEO that wasn't me, I didn't feel it. That notion that I could get up in the morning. Here's here's the funny one, right? Your bank manager at that point, right? My bank manager would would give a, ho- a home loan to any of my five hundred staff because they had a job. Yeah. They wouldn't yeah. give one to me because I was a, a company director. That's not a reliable income yeah, source. Wow. That's not a reliable business. They could go belly yeah, up any right. time. Yeah. Right. Isn't that funny? That's right. But your income would have been. But the point is to flip it is that I can, if, if I got the shits and just turned the business off, 500 people would be out of a job. So therefore, you know, maybe 1,200, pe- 1200 families would be looking for another source of money, yeah. right? That's a lot of mental load at one level, mm-hmm. right? It, it never really hit me. I. I was aware of that intellectually. Mm. It didn't. It didn't impinge on me mentally, because the business was so sustainable, right? That, that it was ticking along, and so I could just let it tick along for a while and it would be okay. Yeah, I think it's a fear that a lot of entrepreneurs face is yeah. that there's this. Oh, it is. There's there's this the thing about the the people relying on. The if they're business. relying on me, yeah, I can't. Yeah. I must. I must work the long hours. because yeah. people are relying on me. And right? what's right if that that's your problem, not theirs, and you need to fix it yeah. by making yourself not someone they're relying on or yeah. convincing yourself that they're wrong about that. Yeah. And those things can both be the case, right? They're wrong about that and maybe so are you. Yeah. Oh, right? without doubt. Look, I it, it, it's because this shit will hit you. Well, You'll get sick, well, it's right? It's definitely something that sits yeah. in my gut, right? Yeah. And I find myself um, always <laughs> always getting um, – always telling myself stories yeah. that probably aren't true. The yeah. – one person in my team said this to me one day when we were having, you know, a bit of a deep and meaningful sort of conversation and they said, 
Dan, we're all very extremely talented people. Yes. We will be okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. And and if you hired well, what they said is true. Correct. By the way. If Absolutely. you hired badly, it might not be. Absolutely. And way. that no, well yeah. that's I yeah. mean we I mean yep. um, head wobble here, we only hire the best people. Gab's here, right? Like yeah. we, uh, if it wasn't for her, this podcast wouldn't be up and running. There but, you go. But so that's a really excellent self thought or how do I how do I um how do I work with remove the key person risk for myself? How do I yeah. make myself redundant, so yeah, to speak? Yeah. And, and you should do. Absolutely. You should do. And, and, and you should keep working on that and, until you feel like you've got there because it's actually worth doing. Apropos of that earlier conversation, right, if you don't have the money to do it, sell a chunk of equity or borrow some money and, and, do, do, and it. do it so, because that if you borrow some money from someone, even to do the classic thing, you borrow from the bank of, bank of family, yeah, right, yeah. and hire that CEO, have a think about how much leverage you get back in your own brain to go do the cool shit that yeah. brings in more business, that yeah. pays that person's salary, that makes the wheel turn by itself. Yeah. And yes, there's a risk there, but business is risk. Mm. If you're afraid of risk, don't play. Well, if you're if you're afraid of risk, you wouldn't have started your own business. I think. Right. <laughs> right. And also, <laughs> and, and I wouldn't wouldn't be flying planes. Yeah. Correct. Right? Which is an exercise Absolutely. not of zero risk, but of extremely conscious, continuous risk management. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You understand the risk, you have a mitigation in place. You keep going. So now that you've sold the business. Yep. Like it became hugely successful. You sold the business. What is your biggest fear in your life that you're living right now? Yeah. i tell you one thing I found as a struggle is slowing down. Yeah. I spent... 20 years-ish in NNO, 10 years in this enormous hyper-growth phase. It's been really hard for me to figure out how to slow down and relax mm. because that fills your brain. Mm. It's, it's exciting. It's that dopamine hit. Yeah, it's exciting, right? And it fills your world and it's a constant kind of you know, positive, yep. generally, noise in the background. Yep. Getting used to actually slowing down and smelling the daisies has actually been a struggle, mm. and I'm still not used to it. I'm still I'm I'm busier now, busy now in in different ways. Yeah, or you're on podcast now. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not I'm not I, w- I would I was going to say I'm busier than I've ever been. That's not true. I was incredibly busy in the midst of that growth curve, yeah. and I had an understanding in our family right that would cope with with the impacts yeah. of that. It's it's a lot better now, but I'm still driven, and. There's a mental bent that caused in and out to be successful, which is for some reason I'm tremendously driven to solve other people's problems. <laughs> I can kind of leave no stone unturned. Yeah. And my family find that very annoying. Because <laughs> they, they might not the want fra- their problems. Right, yeah. right. The phrase my wife correctly uses is, is you, you keep causing us to acquire learned helplessness. <laughs> Stop <laughs> fixing stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, it's, but it's the holdover from a business where my entire passion and drive was solving the problems of 200,000 customers mm. by building it, systems. It becomes, an, it becomes an addiction. It's absolutely an addiction. Mm. And it's taking a while to slow, to slow down from that, right, mm. and, and, and enjoy just doing less stuff. And for me, you know, the chewing gum thing for me is watching, watching procedural crime dramas, right? Yeah. Because 
they're harmless and they're relaxing. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, I'm currently, you know, used to used to be NCIS and now I'm working my way through FBI. Oh, well, there you go. Right. Good shows. Yeah, they are good yeah, shows. Are. Um, but 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 they're <laughs> relaxing because they're predictable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's you, the why. That's why they work. Yeah. Right? Every one of them is a miniature Mills and Boone story. Well, that that's I think leads into another question that I have, which is. So the struggles of an entrepreneur, like you said, is right. the ability to stop. Yep. Yep. Right. That's, the, that's down. the downside of the and capacity to run is working out how to stop running. So in amongst all that yeah. is the ability to stop and smell the roses. Yep. Right. And appreciate the success, appreciate the wins. Yep. Because that's the other thing. There's an element of me that just keeps running. Yes. Yes, and I there's a there's a win. It's the reason you succeed, but it's also the curse. When I, well, like I am exactly. such a goal setter. Yep. You know, in like I know where I want to be, what I want to do, how, and I and I run, yep. and and I run past right past it. And I keep running, and it's like <laughs> why, yeah, why yeah. haven't why can't I personally? And how did you manage to? If you did, I don't know. Did mm. you manage to slow down and? And appreciate the wins along the way. Not well enough yet. No. I'm still working on it. Yeah, it's ten years later. You know, ten years after selling in, selling into that, I'm still working on that. Why? Why are there some people that can do that so well, yeah. and then why are there some that can't? And and is there is that a formula thing? Is the person who keeps running more successful? I think so. From a business perspective, no, I think so. It's just I think they are more successful. It's so not, we're not promoting that by any no, chance. So that, like, but that self driven aspect, yeah. right, is why the business succeeded. I've got into lots of other things since. Yeah. And they are also, you know, the business parts of those are succeeding because of that high involvement as well. Yeah. But it's something I'm much more conscious of these days of trying to manage that balance. And a long way from having managed it successfully, but the first step which I think I've taken is at least being mindful of it. Yeah. In the middle of that enormous hyper growth period, there was nothing to be mindful of. The business was everything. Mm. Right? That's no longer the case in any sense for me. Yeah. Um, and somewhere along the way, back from my uni days, I learned to fly gliders and I now fly gliders and powered planes and things. And that's yeah. my that's what I do to relax, right, as I go fly things. That's my meditation. Yeah. And I get very antsy and my, my family will, in fact, toss me out to go flying if I haven't done it long <laughs> enough because I become hard to live with because I can't get the pressure out. Yeah. Right? We've all got to, got to have that, that safety. Value. That's, that's so mine. true. It's incredibly true and you need to respect it. Um, well, it's, it's a family yeah. having the self awareness too that you need to get to out understand there. that while so you might have while you might have just come back from a busy week's work and they'd like to spend time with you, it might be more important that they toss you out to go flying for a while first. Mm. Otherwise, the human they find themselves faced with at the dinner table might, in fact, be quite hard to get along with. Yeah, right. One hundred. Which is which which does not achieve the intended effect for your your family. And it's a, it's a it's a running challenge. It's not a. I'm not claiming to have solved this at all. No. But again, mindfulness of its nature is the start, right? Uh, yeah, acknowledging it. Yeah. Because there's this family piece in here mm. as well that we need to touch on real quickly, mm. which is how do you fully pursue and realize your visions and your goals while at the same time cultivating those loving relationships yeah. with your family? Yeah. Like if you don't know how to stop. Yeah, then then – you reach a point where you're actually going to have to figure out how to stop or you won't have a family to stop with. Correct. Uh, and that is that is the case. Mm. It is the case. And certainly I am incredibly fortunate now because the exit of Internode was so successful, right, that money is not a challenge to me anymore. Mm. My own 
life and what I do with it is more. And I do have a lot more time to, to hang out with the kids than I used to have, you know. So when, when my youngest youngest wants to be run out somewhere, I can do it because mm. I'm fundamentally sort of mostly kind of working from home. Yeah. Um, the COVID era even made that normal. Yeah. Uh, and if he needs something, he comes first and that's good, mm. right? One of the things I've learned as each of our kids have grown up and left the house is that you don't get those days back again. Yeah. So um, it's not a chore, it's a joy, damn it. Did because you, they will leave eventually and then you'll miss them. So did you consciously manage that through your growth period at Into No? Not nearly as well. No. Right. Again, in that high growth period, it was just about holding on mm. and and various pieces of family life suffered significantly as a result of it. So if you were giving advice to an entrepreneur or someone who's leading a business or yep. high growth business or CEO or a senior leader or whatever it might be, someone who is obsessed with their work. Yeah. What advice would you give in managing their families? This is a re- it's a really good question because – and the answer will vary by person. It's a question of what matters more. And what I'm getting at here is this, the platitude that we always hear from politicians when they retire or whatever, right? You know, so I am, I am retiring to spend more time with my family. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the classic kind of um, nonsense phrase. What I've come to learn is that I suspect in, more, in the majority of cases it's absolutely true. That is the reason. Right, is they've had the epiphany that says if I want to still have a family, I need to stop doing this other thing or I need to do less of this other mm. thing. Um, people lose their families in the meantime. Right? So some, some people succeed in business at the expense of their families. You've got to accept that your mental health, to be more general about this, right, which is tied up in family and friends and what you do on the weekends and what you don't do on the weekends, you have to accept that by definition you will achieve less work this week if you spend some time not working. Yeah. I know that sounds really stupid, but it comes back to mm. that point about the only the only asset we don't have more of is time. Mm. You need to accept, unless you're a superhuman Steve Jobs, that your business may not succeed quite as well as it could have if you spent the extra hour in the office. Mm. But, you know, maybe that's all right. Maybe that's actually Acceptance all right. Acceptance is critical, isn't it? Acceptance of that is critical. The other thing about it, which is actually the reward for accepting it, is... I have watched people spend too much time in offices, you know, and, or even just as students, right? You reach a point where you spend too many days working on something. I used to say in the office, these days you might be at home, right? You spend too many hours working on something and it is better to stop and go home because the five hours you're going to spend getting bugger all done because you're tired already and yeah. making mistakes, it's better you just go home and come back and hit it again in the morning. Mm. That those times when you feel like you, you must stay on with your nose on this grindstone is probably the time at which you should fucking stop. <laughs> get out of the office and go for a run or go fly a yeah. plane or, or, or go get a hamburger. Yeah. Because it's that thing you – it's the lens you need to remind yourself of, right? On my deathbed, will this tender really matter this much to me? Mm. Yes or no, no, right? No, and it's important. And it does not feel that way in that moment. Mm. But no, it doesn't matter. It actually doesn't matter. Mm. It's a hard lesson. Oh, uh. Because it doesn't, it really doesn't feel that way. Well, I think, and you, but you hit the nail on the head that everyone's going to have different varying levels, right, of what that might look yeah, like. Yeah, and what right? trade off they're prepared to have in the Correct. rest of their lives. And it might be, it might be family, it might be friends, it might just be your own happiness. It might be all of those things. If your happiness is defined solely by your business, then maybe you can just be a single person that, that's incredibly good at that. Maybe yeah. that's all right. Mm. Like that's okay too. That's a, but you that's need to have choice. made. But it's a choice. But it's also a decision. Mm. You know. Yeah. So if that is the case and everyone's got their own 
sort of version of events and yep. what might be best for them. If happiness was a recipe. Yeah, yeah. And and that had all different volumes mm. and different mixes and different… Right. What would yours be? Yeah. What recipe a, would what yours be? What a great question. Yeah, because obviously it's different for everybody. Mm. It has to be. right. And it's, it's what that sort of mix of what you might call work and what you might call mm. life is. I mean the thing is that my work never felt like work. It was inherently a source of enormous pleasure. Mm. Otherwise, I wouldn't be, wouldn't have done it, right? It was a hugely stimulating thing to do. Mm-hmm. So for me, that formula involved doing that stuff that made me feel good. We all want to do things that make us feel good, right? And and that's, I guess, the the trick is figure out what makes you feel happy and fulfilled and motivated, and try to try to maximize your opportunity to do it. Uh, and that is different for all of us. Mm. Like, as I mentioned earlier, for me, one of the challenges is actually slowing down and relaxing, mm. and finding pleasure in 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 doing nothing. Yeah. That's not the same as being bored, right? Like kids have a tendency of, you know, if they haven't immediately got something to doom scroll, they're instantly bored, which yeah. is a kind of learnt behaviour thing that yeah. causes me as a completely different segue to wonder whether these smartphones are a good or a bad idea. We can, you know, like cue, a, cue an obvious long conversation. Yeah. yeah. But I, you know, I, I will say to them and as I say to you, I can remember the last time I was bored. I reckon I was about, I reckon I was about 13. Yeah. I've never been bored since because if I, if I, let, the music, feel, if if I let the music stop, some bright idea worms its way in mm. about something. At the moment, we're building a new house in Tasmania and there's all these ideas in the back of my head about how I'm going to build energy systems and geothermal systems and control systems. Yeah. Of course, I'm going to write the control system for it because I can. Yeah. And this isn't work. This is fun, Yeah. right? It might look like work from the outside, but it's not. It's passion. Yeah. Passion's an enormous thing. And like everybody else, Daniel, I get up in the mornings at times and I'm sad and I'm unmotivated and I... Wondering why I'm here and I'm feeling old, like I'm old and I'm going to die and I'm not, you know. None of us are like this all the time. We yeah. can't be. You just got to work your way through it, and yeah. eventually something will pop back up that's interesting again, and you get on with it. You know, we've got to pick ourselves up and get on with yeah. it. Yeah. One of the most annoying things in my life is the idea that, that that I can't live nearly long enough to to keep you know to to have sufficient fun with this. Mm. There's a motto I really enjoy that I did not invent, right? I'm, my, intention is, my intention is to live forever or die in the attempt. Yeah. Because I'm busy yeah. doing shit I like. Yeah. Wow, what a great situation. I remember once I was in a taxi in Sydney and the taxi driver was, was, was yammering on about how he hated his job and I was thinking to myself, is it all right if I like mine? Mm. Is that okay? Yeah. Because I actually like my job. Yeah. I feel <laughs> that way too. Yeah. You mentioned boredom right. in that. Right. And so something – and you said there's this idea that oozes into yeah. my head, right? Yeah, it always fills the gap. Yeah. Yep. And I, I I was just pondering on that as you were speaking, mm. thinking about being bored. If you sit in a quiet space for 30 minutes or half yep. an hour or whatever it might be without any distraction. Yeah, put the gadget down. Put the gadget right. down. Preferably put the gadget in some other room. Yeah. Yep. And, and preferably sit outside in, yep. in nature. Yep, in the fresh air, absolutely. It is really difficult to be bored. I agree. Because the amount of stuff that is going on in your head, yeah. <laughs> right, it's just like it comes out. Right, it, and, and it's, it's exactly. It's screaming at you, And isn't when it? you when you knock out the, noidous, the loudest noise, there's all those other stories underneath. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, you, and that's the mm. self-awareness piece that really mm. – I don't think we spend enough time on. I agree. 
and the I thinking mean, and, time and it's got names, yeah. right? It's got names like meditation. Yeah. And meditation's a very, very good thing to do. Mm. I get my meditation flying gliders. Yeah. And because when you're up, up flying a glider, you can't be answering your email. You're flying yeah. a thing with no engine in it. I mean, mine are self-launches with the engines put away, right? So, yeah. So I'm, I'm flying something. My life depends on getting it right. Mm. It doesn't feel bad. It's, it's the opposite. I'm literally up there hanging out with eagles. And you're in the world being in the world synchronizing yourself with the weather and the light and the sound and the and the We're well, not thinking about anything else. No. It's about staying alive. And isn't it's it? fantastic. <laughs> it is. I think I think meditation is one of those things because I, I I like the guided meditation uh, where they teach you to concentrate on breathing and shut right. out the thoughts. Right. There's an element of me that loves just sitting there within my thoughts. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, just, just exploring, trying it. to unravel the mess yep. that is in there, and yep. and that's a good thing too. Yeah. It's not the same thing, but it's, it's not. It's also correct. a good thing. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's two parts to this that we got to think about. Is what I'm saying. There's two. I agree. And the second one feels more like sort of almost more like mindfulness, and the first one is is yeah is, is the maybe meditation. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I'm conscious of your time. We've gone that's for right. quite a bit, but I want to talk a little bit about now after. Sure. You're in like you're doing some amazing things in renewable energy. I am. I'm having fun. You're where else are you sort like you, you, you're flying plane? I think you, you said you're building a house. I know that you've built an airstrip on that floor. You've got a, a airplane oh, the airstrip strip. was there, but we've improved it. Uh, built, yeah, yeah, built a new house. Yeah, so yeah, you're doing some systems. amazing things. Like, tell yeah, us yeah. what's what's happening. And so, renewable, I know, is a very big passion of yours. Let's yeah, talk. yeah, it is. So, so when I sold in a note, I suddenly had a huge pile of money burning a hole in my pocket. Yeah, um, immediately. It's did, a tough life, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, Having a lot of money does not solve all problems, but ye gods, it solves a lot of them. It right? does, yeah. Like it really does. We're all working to try to get that problem solved, right? And it, <laughs> and it gives you it gives you a whole lot of other av- other avenues of opportunity. Mm. So, uh, so I did two things immediately. Immediately sold the company, paid off the mortgage on the house, mm. fantastic feeling, mm-hmm. and bought the expensive, incredibly awesome plane I'd wanted, I'd always wanted, mm. and and then proceeded to get trained to fly the thing. Brilliant. Uh, and I'm still flying that thing. Yeah, I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Right? Yeah. because that was my reward to me was this really nice thing. Mm. And for, for for your listeners that might know about planes, it's a thing called a Pilatus PC-12. It's a fantastic thing. Yep. It's a 10-seat turboprop, same thing with flying drop to fly. Yeah, great. Uh, and um, it's a it's an awesome piece of work. Because you've, you've flown the F-18, haven't you? Yeah, I've flown an F-18. Is that the Top Gun yeah. model? Is that yeah, the I, I think they had some F-18s in that. It's I mean, they're, they're old school fighter jets fighter now, jets. but they're pretty good cool fighter jets. What was that like? Awesome, yeah. Uh, just a, a lovely rush. Did you fly like by yourself? Or was no two seat. So you, you don't get to fly those no, things no. solo unless you're a RAF pilot. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it was a two seat one that I got. I got the opportunity to fly in, um, uh, which what is which is actually a rare opportunity. There's no. Yeah. It was another long story, right? That got me into it. But actually, the the least interesting plane to fly, other than the enormous power of it, because they're computer driven planes. The yeah. idea is they're very boring to fly. Because they're very um, smart. <laughs> yeah, because the idea is the pilot needs to have their head available to shoot and things. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But back at the ranch, because um, yeah. we've gone down a different route. Yeah, I know. Just so I, sold, <laughs> sold, let me think. Sold the business, paid off the house, bought the plane. Um, what I decided I wanted to do by way of investment, which is so what, what I've done since is we've made a lot of investments in things, right? We bought property, bought shares, invested in various startups, invested in various other businesses. Yep. yep. The drive I formed in my head, Daniel, was that I wanted to find ways to invest in businesses that used technology to enhance the sustainability of the world in the mm. renewable sense, right? Which led me to investing, for instance, to becoming what I'm, I'm the largest investor in, a, in an advanced technology battery company 
based in Brisbane called yeah. Redflow. Yeah. They make a battery that's not lithium and not lead acid. It's incredibly cool. And when What's I, it made out of? Um, it's a zinc bromine flow battery. Okay. So it has a fluid in it, in, yeah. in water, a zinc, zinc, zinc metal and bromine running around in, in distilled water. And it's some ridiculously smart people. It stores world. energy by plating zinc <laughs> yeah, into the wow. electrodes in the battery. And when you're retrieving energy, it's deplating back into back into solution. Because uh, you've asked. Is that, oh, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Is that, so, so briefly, the point of that is that the thing about the size of a bar fridge stores 10 kilowatt hours of energy, won't burn. There's a good thing that lithium mm. doesn't do. Won't burn, completely discharge it, and it doesn't it doesn't hurt it. You can, yeah. you can sit there totally discharged forever without damage. Uh, you can charge it up fully and turn it off and turn it back on two years later and the energy is still in it. So you can use it like a gen set with no fuel. Oh, wow. Very cool device. I'm the largest shareholder in it now. It's a public company. I'm the largest shareholder in the thing. I've got 7 or 8% of it at this Big point. Big company? Like, no, 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 not especially. A um, couple of hundred million market. Yeah. And I think um, it varies, of course, like all of them. Yeah. But here's the point. It was the result of me saying to myself, Daniel, I want to invest in a company making a battery that isn't just somebody importing South Korean lithium and picking a different coloured box to put it in. Mm. There must be someone in Australia that makes an energy storage device that's more interesting yeah. than lithium and lead acid. Yeah. The entire list I could form in Australia was Redflow. Yeah, wow. So I invested in it. And then I wound up being invited to get on the board. I invested some more. I wound up being the chairman of the board. We wound up um, deciding that we needed to change CEOs. So I wound up being the executive chairman for a year. I, yeah. I, I thought I was overrunning businesses. Right? Yeah. I ran a public company for a year as the executive chairman. Oh, my God. While I set up a new board, a new management structure, yeah. and then got the hell out again because yeah. it wasn't my aspiration to run companies anymore, but I felt I had to or, or it would die. And I claim that, that if yeah. I hadn't, it would have. Mm. It's going great again. Um, Is the ultimate goal to sell to – Companies like Tesla and the battery, like to, for them Probably to change Tesla, their, like to, because Tesla want to put things in transport devices, and that yeah. battery is a stationary energy battery. It's not, uh, it doesn't have the energy saying, density of yeah, lithium. Okay. It's less dense. It's you put it in buildings, yeah, like homes, offices, okay, right, different market. Yeah. So anyway, the point is, I started investing in things to come back, pop the stack three levels that use technology to advantage sustainability in the world, mm. and so battery company. I got into – I sort of taught myself and worked with lots of people that sit in the in the industry that build solar and batteries. Got mm. a big solar and battery deployment using red flow batteries in my office okay. in Adelaide. Yep. Built a really big similar deployment in a farm we bought six years ago in Tasmania. That's the one we mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's got – farm's got a runway. It's got 800 sheep. It's got a river running, river running through it. It's got 210 kilowatts of solar and a 300 kilowatt hour red flow battery array, underground three-phase wiring around all the buildings including to the new house we're building, optical fibre net, data network around all the buildings because, of course, right, why, what did I do I for mean, a living? Why wouldn't you? So, <laughs> so we have you know, gigabit fibre running, yeah. all, running all over this farm to all the, all the buildings. And what we and electric vehicles, I've got a Tesla down there, an electric ATV. I want to get electric tractors when some bastard will sell me one. I want to get rid of, du- rid of diesel on the farm. What I'm building is an exemplar of zero carbon agriculture, yeah. damn it. And I'm Enjoy enjoying building it. Right, I w- because I can afford it, mm. and like the early days of computers, what I'm doing, Daniel, is expensive. Mm. It's not cheap. It's got, but it's got incredibly low running costs. Incredibly effective, and like like computers, in ten years' time, this stuff won't be expensive, and this exemplar will be ten years old. Like Internode, mm. I thrive on building exemplars of things for two reasons: one, I enjoy it; two, I hopefully inspire other people. Yeah to do the same thing. And that's the culture piece again. Mm. So I've actually taken the interior culture in Internode and making it exterior. Yeah. 
They're having a ball, honestly, doing it. I love it. Cause you, yeah, because you just – you're setting others up for success, ain't Like, Because yeah. they, yeah. they can see – the pe- And the people that have built this thing. leading by example. Right. Isn't and, it, yeah. and the contractors in Tasmania that have built this stuff are winning awards for it and are inspired to do more of it. Yeah. Well, winner, winner, chicken dinner. That is right? huge. Because I don't need the money. What I need is the change. Mm. What I want to do is inspire the change. Having an so impact. I am, right? And, and a minor example, we're also put a bit about money. We um, we were one of the significant contributors to the Climate 200 exercise. Yeah, wow. Right, to help get some, help so get what, what's, what's the Climate? Climate 200, the thing yeah. Simon Holmes Accord started to, to produce funding and more importantly information for independent federal election candidates. Mm. The Teal Independence, yeah, right, yeah, that yeah. thing. Because I'm highly because because if I could do one thing in the world, Daniel, it would be to find a way to exercise enough mind control on politicians to get on with this shit. Yeah. The 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 frustration I feel, and the and the future blaming our children will correctly give us for not getting on with fixing this shit because we can fix it. It's incredibly frustrating. Yeah. So I'm leading by example. Which well, the four-year mindset, isn't it, right? Like right. it's just frustrating. Right. Oh, yeah, right. This is diff- no different to the conversation we just had with Adrian Temple. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the four-year lack, mindset's horrible. The lack of yeah. visionary. And, and it's the one downside of democracies, right? Mm. Democracies are arguably the least worst form of government, but what they lose out of compared to the Japanese and the Chinese systems is the inc- is the lack of capacity to have a 100-year plan for anything. Yeah, yeah. And, my God, do we need a 100-year plan they for They play this? the long game, don't they? Yeah. I, I – um, I often say this to my wife <laughs> at home um, and where, you know, decisions are made from government and I often say I am really frustrated at being dictated by people who actually, well, they've got the information at hand but yes. they're thinking more about getting re-elected than what, that's what it feels they're like. They're thinking about getting re-elected yeah. and annoyingly more than I have wanted to believe they're also thinking about what the lobbyists are telling them. Yeah. Right? The fossil fuel industry is incredibly good at lobbying politics mm. and it's the same reason and it's the same lobbyists that used to used to work in the tobacco game. Right? Yeah. The money spent on the consultants that achieve the lobbying makes more money every day compared to the delay mm. in, in improving things, right? Like it's in their financial interest to delay the inevitable. Which yeah. is incredibly frustrating and embarrassing again in the eye, correctly in the eyes of our children who are being educated today about how bad this shit is and they're right. How powerless must they feel looking at their peers doing nothing? Mm. It is remarkably frustrating. Yeah. And and so again, I just build exemplars yeah, in, the hope, well in the hope that when people when people are ready to do the good stuff. There's a case exists, study there. Right. As many case studies as possible to at least eliminate eliminate the perception that there's any execution risk. Mm. Now it's just about get on with it. Yeah. I love that. That. Yeah, we could talk about this forever. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, but... <laughs> and I do like this stuff. Let's... Um, Beware. I do like this jump, stuff a lot. Yeah, maybe there's a part <laughs> two in all this. Yeah, um, maybe. Let's talk quickly before we round up. Just about you're doing some philanthropy stuff as yep, well. Sure. Giving back as well with yep. the money that you've earned. So that's a really nice story to sort of round off the podcast with. Can you talk to us about that? Surely. Well, I mentioned one interesting thing just then. The Climate 200 yep. is in yeah. fact a form of yes, philanthropy. Um, trying to advantage the notion that independence would be a better thing to have in parliament. And, hey, it seems to be working. We, when when Inanode was sold, the other thing we did was started a little foundation. We took some of the money and whacked it in a, in a, in a private ancillary fund, which mm-hmm. is what you do. Um, a little thing called the Hackett Foundation, and yep. we use that to make donations to various very eclectic things. Daniel, mm-hmm. it's 
and they're quite eclectic. They're all the way from little donations to little things to big donations and big ones. Yeah. The biggest single one that we support is actually a thing called Wom Adelaide. Oh yeah, right. The world of music, arts, and dance here well in done. here in Adelaide, and it's great initiative. It's a fabulous thing. Uh, briefly, WOMAD is actually an outgrowth of something Peter Gabriel started 40 years ago, one of my absolute idols. And in the late 80s, in the internet era, I found myself in Peter Gabriel's studio in Box in the UK with a little team of people hooking his studio onto the internet when that was hard. Mm. Got to meet him, got to meet his studio manager, Mike Large, who is still a friend of mine to this day. Uh, and Peter founded WOMAD. WOMED, World of Music, Arts and Dance, was his intention of trying to bring artists from countries that weren't getting mainstream music exposure and bring them to people. Mm. And so 40 years ago in the UK that became a festival that was on every two years and then became annual. Ten years later the Australian version of that, effectively franchised from the UK version, was started. WOM mm. Adelaide in Adelaide was started 30 years ago, still going. It was started as an experiment in the Festival of Arts and then it became a standalone event. And about 10 years ago, when, um, or more than 10 years ago now, I used to wish that Internode could sponsor it, that Internode would be big enough to sponsor that event, yep. to be the major sponsor, yep. because I just love the event so much. It's a beautiful place. You, you go from Friday night to, to Monday, Monday night, and you send your kids around and they're safe, and this incredible smorgasbord of music, music and arts and dance, and it's gorgeous and everyone feels good. It's meditative in its own mm. way, right? And if you don't like that artist, walk along to the next stage and listen to the next one, mm. yeah? So yeah. I wanted to sponsor it. And I got – there was no financial rationality in Internode being the major sponsor of that, but I did it anyway. And then we sold Internode to INET and INET kept sponsoring it in Internode's name. Then TPG bought INET and TPG shut off all the sponsorships immediately. And we immediately took up the sponsorship of that event in our own right as the Hackett Foundation. And yeah. we are to this day the major sponsor of that event. It's a significant annual contribution to a significant event and I feel so warm and fuzzy walking around that event feeling like it exists in part because of because of that decision to support it and it's directly giving something back to the state that I love and the country I love and giving back in the form of music I mean what a great thing I have no musical talent <laughs> my mother was a great pianist my son Gabe is awesome he plays he plays the cello and the electric guitar and and, and a bit of piano the only keyboard I can play has letters on it. <laughs> so I make up for that lack of musical talent by hanging around with artists. Yeah. And WOMAD gives me the fabulous excuse to hang around with artists and make people smile. And it just, it just gives us a warm and fuzzy feeling. And that's another answer to that question, the thing we were talking about. You know, what do you do to feel like effectively why do you want to get up in the morning, mm. right? That, gives, that makes me feel happy about getting up in the morning. I feel like I'm giving something back. Oh, look, thank you so much for doing it. I mean – the people of South Australia and, and the world really uh, oh, awesome are, are experiencing um, an amazing event yeah. with like so much richness and and colour and and, and I've got to say the up, yeah the upcoming one in March March twenty three definitely go to that one it's thirty first thirty first year since it went on we bring in the feathers back oh um, wow there you the, go it's the incredible Will you be, uh, wearing some of them? yeah <laughs> no no this is this is an incredible French troupe the feather uh, the the there are there will be angels playing above you on wires, and then this incredible amount of duck feathers falls down out of the sky like snow. And by the time you're done, it's everywhere. And you've got kids and adults playing in a snow made of duck feathers, with this fabulous music. It is so involving. Everybody is smiling and happy, mm. and it'd be on every night at Womad from 23. We we put it on. It's an explosion five, of yeah, senses, isn't it's it? It's really? beautiful. We, yeah. we did it five years ago. 
Yeah, and I we remember. thought we I thought, thought, it, I thought I heard this, and before. we thought it would never come back. And we thought, no, we got to do this one more time. It's and just it's, it's going to kill a lot of ducks, though. It's no, <laughs> strange, it's, you know, it's interesting. Strangely, not. It's a great question, <laughs> yeah. and the answer is that they buy duck feathers from the clothing industry that would otherwise wind up in a Patagonia jacket. Uh, okay, they they pay big bucks for for ducks like that are actually like, like yeah. sustainably duck driven down. to produce yeah. this duck down. And it's biodegradable. And they, they ship a shipping container full of clothing-grade duck feathers to Adelaide. What a crazy statement. And then proceed to drop it on the audience every night. Um, it's awesome. So rounding up the podcast, thank you again for <laughs> duck coming feathers. in. Duck there feathers. What a good way to end it. Um, I've got a bunch of quick-fire questions okay. that we really just want to ram through. Feel free to elaborate uh, should you need. But it's just a good way to finish off the podcast. All right. So – we are big readers here at yep. Creating Synergy. We we love our books and, and constantly yeah, so uh, striving to improve ourselves and read. And, and so, what is one book that you're reading right now? Uh, I've been re- I like rereading old science fiction books. I like so I've actually Ringworld. Okay, yeah, Larry Larry Niven's Ringworld, awesome book. Yeah, yeah, totally okay. awesome science fiction book. Let's put that and, in the and, show. And the non non fiction book I read most recently, I actually reread again, is a book called Exact. Um, Simon Winchester is the author. It's about the evolution in humanity of high precision measurement. Oh wow! And believe it or not, it's a really interesting topic. Yeah, like how how you go from Neanderthal axes to 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 micrometers and why, and and the revolution is produced in the world of manufacturing. It's actually a bloody good yeah, book. Yeah, wow! It's quite entertaining. It would be. What's one book though that you feel that stands out from the crowd from a non-fiction point of view? Well. I was thinking about that the other day, and, and let's say, and effectively, in terms of a business book, there's a, there's again an old one that I really quite enjoy called Maverick. The right. author is Ricardo Semler. Yeah. It's a it's a book about a very unusual, and this won't surprise you, very open book business. This guy inherited from his father mm-hmm. and decided a manufacturing business, decided to run in a very very open way with his staff. Mm. So open that, for instance, he he educated his his main factory guys in accounting, and then said, "You guys figure out how much to pay yourselves." You know, oh, wow. here are the books. You work it out. Let's make it sustainable. Let me yeah. dig in, right? But the thing I learned from that is quite deep. He's got this fabulous chapter in there about time management. And the thing I took home from that, Daniel, is the following. When people tell you that you're harder to contact than the Pope, you need to take it as a compliment. Yeah, really. Right? In other words, you're doing it right. Yeah. Your major asset is your time and you need to be really careful about whose time you give it to, right, who you give that time to. I really like that. Yeah. Isn't that great? That is fantastic. Like take that as a compliment. Don't feel like you've got to be available to every bastard all of the time because it comes right back to that conversation we had about fixing other people's problems. Mm. First fix your own. Oh. Bang, cop that. All right. What is one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? Um, Believe it or not, it's actually that one. Stop fixing other people's problems. (laughs) (laughs) It really has been. But it's been the key to my success but it's also in a sense – one of the worst things yeah. for me. Well, your life. greatest asset is also your greatest biggest, liability. Yeah. yeah, right. You've got to manage it. That. Yeah, I'm, I is think that. I'm, I can walk that same path. Yeah. yeah. What uh, if you could invite three people for, yeah. for dinner? Who would they be? Yeah, I had a thought. I had a thought. I really had to think about this. Um, Elon Musk. Yeah. Surprise. Surprise. Had Surprise. Been, yeah. Elon Musk. Peter Gabriel. I met him yes. once, and yeah. I'd love to spend more time with him, and ideally with his with his buddy Kate Bush, oh, yeah. um, and um, Taika Waititi, Ooh. the director, yeah, who 
I don't know what's going on in his head, but man, I'd love to figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> yeah, and the thing about those, though, that set of people is, but that's three separate dinners because those human beings you would want to provide with your undivided attention. Mm, yeah. I mean, I'd like, but I'd, yeah, them. Can you imagine the chaos on at one table if yeah. they're all at one table? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it would end strangely. I love it. What's some of the best advice that you've ever received? Yeah, interesting. I, I haven't – it might sound strange, but people don't seem to give me much advice. I tend to be doling it out more than receiving it. Um, <laughs> well pulled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the thing I'd say, which is not quite an answer to your question because I can't directly identify um, a piece like that, it's what I've had to, had to keep learning is, is, is about fallibility and humility right? Mm. You are fallible, roll with it, have humility. None of us deserve too many tickets on our, on ourselves. Mm. We're all going to die eventually. Yeah. So that's what I've, that's what I've kind of imputed from various places, but mm. yeah, that's kind of the answer I could give you. If you had access to a time machine, where would you go? I think I'd like to go forward a couple of hundred years to figure out how the hell this current story ends. The whole, the whole planet story mm. thing, that whole sustainable only, world thing. Only a couple of hundred years? Yeah, because in a couple of hundred years' time, there's going to be a hell of a lot less humans at this rate. It'll be interesting to see what that world looks like. You know, only a few hundred years. I, the other thing I'd love Why to do... Why do you say that? Because the climate change thing is going to cause non-linear destruction of habitat, right? We are, we are, it's, it could be a very tough couple of hundred years if we don't actually start not destroying mm. our planet. See, I start getting really worried. It's non-linear yeah. is the point, right? Yeah. You know, when the ice caps melt, everything happens really quick, all of that stuff. Um, I'm thinking of water like, world right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'd like to see how that comes out. The, the related thing is that I'd really love – I would love to indulge in space travel and I'm on the edge of – we're on the edge of managing that at the moment. But given another couple of hundred years, it'll hopefully be routine. Mm. Hopefully. You know, I'd love to fly in space. Well, that's why you're inviting Elon, right? Yeah, exactly. To say, hey, mate, what do I do to get a ticket? Yeah, yeah get, me on, get me on that rocket. Yeah. Yeah. And so, to, to, to live, be, to do you want to live on like a place like Mars or do you? No, like, no, no, Elon does. I don't. I like Earth, thanks. Yeah. I'm good with that. Earth is much good. And, and look, to be clear, I'm, I'm an optimist about the future of the planet. One of the things people get wrong, of course, is the planet won't end. It's just the humanity that's threatened, not the action. Mm, the yeah, the planet will throw it all off and yeah. give it a thousand years. So I go back to antibiotic, right? Yeah, exactly. There's too many of of us but you know i i'm actually pretty optimistic that we will be able to throw enough technology at fixing the problem well enough and fast enough it's just as we've touched on incredibly annoying that we have to yeah i think it's um i think it's a shame that we have to yeah it's a shame that we have to that's exactly right but the one of my favorite tv shows was, was growing up was stargate do you remember that? yeah i do remember Where stargate. you could just instantly go to another planet right yep. through a gate that's what i'm waiting for like, that'd be fun there. wouldn't it i don't want to travel yeah. through space i just want to walk through a there gate you go. End up there. you're reminding me of a show i used to watch it watch at my son gabe's age which is space 1999 yeah it's terrible yeah. terrible that's drama. what made it so good yeah it nostalgic is. and everything was everything was kind of curvaceous white plastic yeah. it all looked like it all looked like 2001 a space yeah. odyssey yeah there. and all these people with very broody expressions <laughs> If your house was on fire and your family, your pets, everyone, they're all safe, what would you run back in and grab? You know, I wouldn't necessarily run in and grab very much because honestly the family and the pets are about the only things that are, hard mm. to, are actually hard to replace. Mm. And if I've learned something, it's that almost no other chattels you've got actually matter very much. Mm. I mean, you, you, know, you can be sentimental about that, you know, that ring or that bit of jewellery. I suppose the thing I'm the most sentimental about is a little box I've got 
full of actual physical souvenirs from that business career and yeah. all those early days in America of it, mm. like physical photos and little badges from conferences yeah. I went to. You haven't uploaded them yet? No, no, no yeah. it's just it's just this little pile of stuff, yeah. you know, so that just sits there. But Larry Niven, the author who I'm rereading at the moment, he, he said it well, I think, and I'm pretty sure it was him that said it, you never really own anything that you can't carry with you at a flat-out run. Mm. That's right? true. Yeah. What you own is what's in here and the capacity to use that to do other things and you own your understanding of human yeah. relationships. What's, um, what's going through my mind right now is have you ever read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? No, I've heard of it. I haven't read oh, it. Oh, it's, it's possibly my favourite book of right. all time, right? It's, so uh, Viktor Frankl was a psychotherapist that went was involved in Auschwitz and, and the, wow. the camps right. and, and whatnot. And so when he was captured... Uh, he um, and taken to the prisoner camps. He was then stripped. Uh, they all the people yep. in 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 that scenario were stripped. And so he talks about the feeling of losing all possession. Yeah. And how the only thing that you actually own is your body yes. and your mind. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. And it's just an it's just a remarkable. I re- I recommend. Sounds remarkable. Sounds great. And the thing is that in our modern world that is full of so much noise that comes at us through our gadgets, Mm -hmm. you've got to imagine that a shockingly large proportion of the human population in the first world have nothing like that experience Mm. and may never have anything like that experience, may never in fact slow down enough to realise the truth of that statement. Yeah. 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 It's... Oh, actually, can you please just read it and I want, yeah. to, I want to have a conversation yeah, cool. with you about because the first part is about his experiences in the camps and then the second part is the thought process of right. the mindset. So it's, right. like, it's a, almost like a two-part piece. Sounds so great. So you will love it. Um, if you had one superhero power, what would it be? And you're not allowed to say fly, right? Oh, you, damn, <laughs> damn, because that was the obvious one. Um, mind control. Yeah. So I convinced those damn politicians to get on with ignoring the fossil fuel industry. Dead set, mind control. Done. Let's leave that there. Now, one of my favourite parts is: Do you have a dad joke? Yeah, I'm. I'm really tragic with dad jokes. I and often I need context to come up with them, but I, I can think of lots of dad jokes. Let me give you a knock knock joke. Go. Knock knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting. <laughs> I knew that. I you knew, knew that, that was coming. coming. <laughs> you knew it was coming, didn't you? Um, um, and I'll give you another couple. All right. Um, Dean Martin's law, which is: You're not drunk if you can lie on the floor without holding on. <laughs> And the last one, the last not quite safe for work one, um, it used to be applied to Reagan, but it works even better with Trump, which is, which is, why does Donald Trump always have sex lying on his back? Why is that? Because he can only fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, that's really, that's not getting edited out too. Gabs, that's staying in. I love it. Look, Simon, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. uh, It's been a remarkable conversation one that I know that many leaders, entrepreneurs, um, business owners, whatever it might be, uh, will listen in and right. and get some really great knowledge. So thank you. And look, thank you for everything that you know, from yeah, silly things from Tesla, bringing that into Australia or being a part of that yep. to creating internet, everything that we kind of do and the way we work today yeah. has got a little bit of your fingerprint in there, which is just, yeah, just a, a teeny and a, an amazing, just a teeny an amazing com- accomplishment. And, you know, you must be very proud of yourself. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone. That's uh, that's all we've got time for. Today, actually, one last question. Where oh, yeah. can we find you if we want to get in contact with you or if people want to follow you? Or- okay. Um, 
Twitter's the social media place I hang out on. So yep. at Simon Hackett, one word. Yep. Very easy. Perfect. And I've got a Hackett web- with a double T. Yes, Hackett with a double <laughs> T. And I've got a, a website with a blog on it that I, I post things uh, intermittently about on a lot of these topics, actually. Yeah. And that's at simonhackett.com. Perfect. Easy. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. We will catch you next time. Thanks again, Simon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care guys. All the best. All the best.